you're muted. Of course. Thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, today is Wednesday, May 12th, 2021. Uh, the time is 5.36 PM. This is the full commission uh, meeting of the Juvenile Probation Commission. Madam Secretary, can you please call the roll? President Joseph Ariano. Present. Vice President Catherine Chu. Present. Commissioner Margaret Brodkin. Present. Commissioner Daniela Maldonado. Present. Commissioner Toya Moses. Present. Commissioner Andrea Shorter. Present. Commissioner James Bengola. Present. Do you have a quorum? Thank you. Uh, now we'll take general public comment. Uh, at this time, do we have uh, any submitted voicemails or emails, uh, Madam Secretary, that have been submitted for general public comment, item number two? No emails. And it doesn't look like we have any callers on the line at this time. I'll just use this as a reminder to the public listening in or tuning in uh, online to press star three to raise their hand, be added to the conference line. Uh, this is general public comment for up to three minutes on any matter within the commission's jurisdiction that does not appear on tonight's agenda. And we'll just give it maybe three to five seconds for folks who may want to press star three and raise their hand for general public comment. I do see a hand raised, I believe, Pauline, um, is that? Yes, so there is a six callers listening and one caller in the queue with their hands raised. I'll go ahead and unmute that caller for you. Thank you. Hi there, um, thank you. Um, this is Molly Brown calling and I am calling tonight to bring the commission's attention to the fact that Catholic Charities will be closing the lone remaining group home for girls in San Francisco next week. Um, this is in part too many things. Um, there haven't been that many girls in the home, um, but uh, more importantly is we now no longer have a place to put girls uh, when we do have them. and. Um, that will mean girls will spend more time waiting in the hall, and when they are placed, they'll be placed out of county. I'd like to thank Chief Miller for her many efforts in trying to negotiate for an extension while we come up with alternative ideas for keeping it open, and to Commissioner Brodkin for reaching out to judges and supervisors um, to try and support this effort as well, but it's my understanding that that will be happening next week. I wanted to let the commission know that I think it is now incumbent on the commission to make sure that we do have adequate beds in our own community in San Francisco for these youth. Uh, the, the old model, the antiquated model of relying on nonprofits to create and sustain beds, regardless of the number of placements, has proven uh, incredibly unsuccessful. And for that reason, we no longer have a girls' home in San Francisco for either foster, for either girls through the foster care system or probation. So I would like to recommend that the commission place as part of its own policy for the department to create beds in the community um, over a three-year period that can be used alternative to, as an alternative to detention. And um, the, first, the first action should be to retain the ones we have um, and to create new ones. And um, would love to see that be something that the commission would be willing to take up. Thank you so much. Thank you. Are there other callers with their hands raised at this time? Are no other callers in the queue? 
And I'll just remind the public before we close this item to raise their hand by pressing star three if they'd like to be added to the public comment line for general public comment. Once, going twice. Are there any other hands raised? Seeing any, we'll go ahead and close item number two general public comment and move to item number three, review and approval of the full commission meeting minutes of our last meeting, April 14th, 2021. Do I have a motion to approve? So move. Do I have a second? A second. At this time, can we have a roll call vote? Or excuse me, at this time, do, can we have a public comment on this item, item number three? Again, pressing star three to raise your hand. Not seeing any hands raised. Madam Secretary, do we have any hands raised? Just confirming. So I cannot see the attendees actually. So, oh, okay. so Shavila is the host for tonight, but we do not have any emails. Understood. I'm not seeing any hands raised, so. All in favor? Thank you. Could we have a roll call vote uh, for this Okay, motion? President Ariano. Aye. Vice President Chu. Aye. Commissioner Brodkin. Okay. Commissioner Maldonado. Aye. Commissioner Moses. Aye. Commissioner Shorter. Aye. Okay, thank you. And Commissioner Spingola. Aye. Motion approved. Thank you. Now we'll take item number four, the chief's report. Chief Miller, could we, are you there? I'm here. Just are. waiting for my turn to be called. Thank you, Chief. I'll hand the virtual uh, gavel to you. Okay, looks like I have the ball I'm going to try to share. And can you see my screen? We yes. can. Great. So we, um, so hello everybody, happy May. Um, we are going to uh, continue presenting tonight the way we, we tried doing last month. I'm going to just highlight a few slides in our very long a monthly statistics report, only four slides tonight, actually. Happy to take questions about others. Um, but I'm purposely doing that because you all have this information already. And we want to save time for our deep dive. And the deep dive this month um, is going to be Raina presenting her um, analysis of our out of home placement data and her recommendations from the work she's been doing this, uh, this whole many, many months at this point for us on her analysis. Um, so I'll leave it to Raina to in, after I finish this to introduce herself, remind everybody about her project and then share some findings. Um, it's very, very timely for us to be looking at this data, especially given uh, the, the really critical issue that Molly raised during public comment. Um, but I'm going to start by launching us into just a few slides. And again, I'm happy to go back and do more of them if folks want. But I'm going to start by taking us to slide three, our juvenile hall demographics. This was from Monday. 
So on Monday, we had 15 youth in juvenile hall. That's actually how things looked for most of last week. That's what things still look like today. Um, 14 boys and one, well, 14 young men and boys and one girl. 53% of the kids in the hall are black, 27% are Latinx, 20% are AAPI. 40% as of Monday were 18 or older. So that's an even bigger ratio than we've often seen lately in terms of our young adults who are in the hall. 46% of the kids in the hall at this time are kids who had been previously committed to out of home placement. One of the kids in the hall um, is a young person who was committed there for a period of up to six months. I think I've said this before, but I'll just bring it up again. And it was on um, the motion of that young person and her attorney. Um, so she's with us for a while. Um, and uh, uh, I'm going to now move us to the next slide that I'm going to highlight, which is all the way to slide 18 admissions by primary detention reason. I know this is something that is really important for us to be scrutinizing every month. Um, as a reminder, we've kind of changed the format of this so it looks a little bit different, hopefully a little easier to follow. So you can see the kind of buckets of reasons that kids come in. In March, there were 19 admissions to juvenile hall. I think you'll remember that February was, was quite lower and you can see it, it was only 16, a very low number for us. But 19 admissions in March, 12 of those were mandatory, so basically two thirds, um, two of which were new law violations, eight were warrants or court orders. Of the seven non-mandatory detentions, um, six of them came in for a, because they scored over 11 or higher on our detention risk instrument. So if you score 11 or higher, that is a detention. Um, of those six cases, five were for weapons offenses. They were all guns. Um, and one was due to a current offense um, and the young person's legal status and some aggravating factors, including violating their home detention and the judge ordering them returned to custody. And then we had one case that was a detention override. Um, I'm going to move us now to slide 24, um, which is our active caseload. Oops, I skipped it. So you can see that the, the downward trajectory continues. It's kind of feels a little bit like it's leveling off in the decline from month to month. Um, but I just want to remind everybody, we see this decline starting from a year ago, March, when we had 519 cases active to now the end of March when we had 345. Um, our pre-adjudicated caseload is down 45% from that time a year ago and post-adjudicated is down 23%. Um, so I guess what I would share is that what we're still seeing those kind of depressed COVID numbers having a heavier impact on that pre-adjudicated, that front end of cases. I think we'll see a period where it'll kind of ripple through into post-adjudicated, but we're still seeing that downward trend. Um, and I think we will see in the next few months, I think it really feels like the world is reopening. Um, we'll see whether it is in fact a continued trend or whether it's a depression that in any way goes back up. Um, I'll say, you know, given the number of kids we have in the hall right now, it does feel like there's more activity happening right now. This still reflected that downward trend at the end of March. And then the last slide that I will touch on today, and then again, obviously very happy to go back and talk about others, is the last slide, which is focusing on slide 42, which is focusing on our proposed schedule for you commissioners of deep dives. So when we want to go into some really specific data in a comprehensive way for you. 
So today, um, once we finish with this piece, I'll turn it over to Reina and she'll go into her deep dive on out of home placement. Um, we would like to propose that in June, um, we want to do a couple sessions for you where we really look into length of stay, like really what's driving how long kids are in the hall so that it can affect the way that we do our work. So we'd like to start in June by looking at the actual time from booking to detention hearing. Um, we think that it uh, offers, we've done some preliminary looks and I think it offers some really good lessons for us about ways we may want to rethink some of the detention decisions we make and the work we do between that decision and a hearing. Um, so we'd like to offer that up as the thing to kind of dig into in June. And then in July, we'd like to offer doing kind of an in-depth review of our annual report. Um, we have significantly like rebooted the way juvenile probation is doing its annual reports going forward. So we'd like to offer that, walk through it and get your feedback on it as a commission. So our suggestion is that we do that in July. Um, but we also wanted to note that we've listed out all the other kinds of things that you, the commissioners, have asked for. Um, when we brought this up at the last meeting, what are the kinds of things we want to do those deeper dives into? So we noted a lot of things we heard in that conversation, as well as some things we wanted to add ourselves for your consideration. Um, and I would put out to you that we, I guess we would look for your sign off on what we're suggesting for June and July. And then would want to know what you want us to dig in. And then if you are comfortable with these suggestions, what you want us to look at after that, um, whether it's August or whether if there's no meeting in August, whether it's September. Um, it does take us time to do the real level of kind of analysis we're gonna wanna be presenting to you. So as much notice as we have possible, it makes a big difference for us. So I will pause to go back and talk in about any other parts of the monthly data that you want me to touch on. And then I would love to just spend a minute on this slide and doing some collective planning and agreement. Thank you, Chief. Um, I'm glad you addressed it in your remarks. Um, I, the one question I wanted to um, ask was in relation to the average daily population, it, uh, it was 15, is that what it was? So it's 15 as of Monday. Here, wait, we'll go back. So Monday, this, so we always do kind of a snapshot, right? And then we also do average. So if you look at where we are right now, um, in this month, then you can see where we are, right? Which, oops, sorry, which is 15. So they're 15 on Monday. Like I said, that held pretty firm from last week. Um, but if you wanted to go back and look the way we usually do the report, we go back a month. So if you go back to, if you go to slide six, that will be the last month for which we did an average daily population across the month, um, which was, which for us would have ended in uh, going through April. Um, and you can actually see that it was right here, pretty low. So we were low for April. We had relatively lower intakes. It was very quiet here. There were some days where we had fewer than 10 kids. And you can see that in this low average daily population of 10 for April. I think it'll be really interesting for us to see what May looks like. So the 15 number is not the average daily population. That's currently Correct. in the hall as right. of Monday. Correct. We do a snapshot for the Monday before the meeting, so you can kind of see where we are today because this chart ends at the end of the preceding month. Right. right. Yeah, I might, I was curious about as San Francisco is now, uh, is it the yellow tier? I think um, that we're in the yellow tier. So I was just curious if that had had any kind of effect, and also with schools, you know, now starting to reopen. I guess high school is supposed to start at the end of this week, so um, for a few weeks. So I was just curious if we had seen any of 
the yeah. data show or reflect any kind of change in our numbers as a result of that. And it sounds like we're not there yet to make a determination. Right. And I would say, I think we'll see things opening up in some ways. I think my editorial comment about the way that schools are reopening for high schoolers in San Francisco has been that we're not going to see a lot of um, kids out and about going to and from school because the um, opening of our San Francisco schools is extraordinarily limited for our high school students, especially our seniors, if you read any of the recent coverage. Um, commissioners, uh, that was my question. I just opened the floor before we move on to other commissioners that have questions at this time. Hands raised, not seeing. Oh, Commissioner Chu. Thank you. Um, Chief Miller, I, I had a question. It, it looked to me like there was one, uh, one admission for a DRI override, so that would be a non-mandatory detention. I'm wondering, I, I know that the cases are completely confidential, but I'm wondering if there's any sort of, any information you could give us as to what went into that decision-making process. Um, and hopefully we can include a bit of the override portion when we do the deep dive on the DRI. Sure. I think it's, oh. Right, you had six overrides. No, 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 there weren't six overrides. There were six. Um, that, thank you for asking that question. Six that scored 11 or higher. So, those aren't overrides, those are actually recommended bookings by the detention risk instrument. Um, and Commissioner Chu, you're asking about the actual case that was an actual override, right? Right, um, and I am. Looking at it at this moment, um, it's very hard for me to talk about it in the, because it's one case. Um, it was something that I was aware of at the time. Um, I guess the best I can say was that there were so many things happening in that young person's life that were of serious concern um, that it was a collective decision with even their parents heavily involved in actually um, advocating for that. Uh, while while a case plan was reassessed for them, and th that's kind of all the information I will go into. Right, that that's totally fair. Yeah. Um, I wonder. Uh, this could be my lack of knowledge. Um, I assume that the youth did not have like a defense counsel at that time when the analysis was being done, and so I wonder if there is a way to loop in perhaps a public defender when there's a case that that um, is being considered for an override. Uh -huh. So I should clarify, this was not a new young person not known to us. This was an active young person on probation who already did have a defense attorney and probation officer working with the family. Got it. That's helpful. Sorry for not. I should have led with that, Commissioner. No, that's okay. Um, I don't expect you to read my mind. <laughs> um, I also, uh, and again, this could be me reading it wrong. Was there a new admission for? It looked like the youngest age was age 14, which to me, I mean, obviously we're always dealing with youth, but um, that seems a little on the concerning low side in terms of yes. age. That is one of our lower ages now of kids who we will have, who we do have in the hall. Um, and obviously, you know, the, the law changes, we, the youngest kids are no longer eligible to be detained under the most, most serious offenses. And even in San Francisco, we're working on alternate plans for those youngest kids. But we do sometimes, we do have 14 year olds in the hall in some cases. Um, as a general rule, I'll say that we, it's a very um, 
generally the kids who are in the hall right now are there for very serious reasons. But correct, we do have a 14 year old. Question. Um, Commissioner. I'm trying to electronically raise my hand. I don't know if you can see me. And I can see just, um, I just should add, um, just to Commissioner Chu's last question, Commissioner Shorter, before you ask a question, just want to remind everybody that um, the laws around automatic mandatory detention for 707B offenses do apply to ages 14 and up. Okay. Go ahead. Um, actually, you you <laughs> you kind of read my mind. Um, because I was going to ask about also just the mandatory um, detention really as it related. I think you had described that that five of six youth uh, that we have um, have gun related offenses. Okay. Sure. So, so, well, so more than five of six youth in the hall have gun related offenses. So, so mandatory detention would be a 707B offense for anyone 14 and up. Right. Um, or a, a case in which the, a, a gun was used. So that right. category is automatic detention until you, until detect, automatically detained until they go before a judge. On our risk instrument, one of the things that is used for scoring is whether there is a gun involved in the arrest. It may be a possession, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if the offenses add up to 11 or more points, then the recommendation is detained. And so, Five out of six of those had a gun involved mm -hmm. as one of the charges. Right. And but that's in addition to other kids who were detained for the use of guns and offenses. Okay. So, Thank you yeah. for that. I was just kind of building on what um, Vice President um, Drew was asking with regards to the um, a caution around the, you know, age. 14, but my understanding is that that it will be mandatory and not that she, she wasn't suggesting it's not, but I just wanted to clarify that it is. In fact, mandatory that they be detained. Thank right. you. And, correct. And so a 13 year old could be brought to the front door with the same charges. It wouldn't be a mandatory booking. Right. Mr. Brodkin, every hand raised. Yeah, I, I, I was interested in the same thing because. It, did I read the report correctly that only two of the referrals this month were 707Bs? Which slide are you on? Well, I'm, I don't know anymore. I, I read it before the the meeting. So, it, 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 but it's the same theme that we've been talking about. Like, when you look at that population, um, well, one, I want to know about the gun things where they are, are kids going around shooting each other now or were the guns you know they they were in possession of a gun sure. it, so that's kind of yeah I, I there's there's sort of a range of things that it could be i think i thought i read that there were only two 707b referrals i could there were, no there were only there were 19 admissions of those only um Two were for new law violations. So other some of it, so kids were coming back in on cases that were already open. 
But it's worth noting that those cases are largely open 707B cases. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah, so, but I guess, you know, since we're trying to reduce the population in the juvenile hall and have all these alternatives, and actually the mayor at our closed juvenile hall or the Blue Ribbon Committee seemed very, you know, enthusiastic about efforts to reduce the population. When you look at the population, I mean, um, does something say, oh my God, if only we had this kind of service, you know, we wouldn't have had to have incarcerated some of these kids or not? Do you, what, 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 what's your thinking about that? Um, I, I, I mean, I think this is exactly the kind of thing that I'd like to do as kind of a deeper dive. But okay. I would say with like data and not like my kind of spidey sense, but I will say that my spidey sense is like when I, so we do, you know, you guys have heard me say this many times, but we do houseless reviews where you look at every kid who's in the hall a few times a week and why. Um, and, you know, there, the kids who are with us today by and large have some very complex needs. I don't know whether the loss of out of state group homes is a real factor for that. Um, for example, you saw the number of kids we have who are 18 and older. As a reminder, we have very few in-state options for kids who've turned 18. We have very few state options for kids who've completed or are close to completing their high school diploma. Um, that's a fair number of the kids who we have right now. And so that, that then comes back to all of us to say, with the loss of those imperfect but still used out-of-state placements that were more likely to take older kids, were more likely to take kids who were already who needed college instead of high school. What are we going to have here locally? And so, by the way, at the next program committee, we're going to talk about uh, the continue to talk about the 18 and over, and we're going to talk about various kinds of housing and supportive housing and you know potential alternatives for for that population, which I think, I mean, it's just amazing to me that 45% of the young people coming coming in are, are 18 and over. Um, in terms of the list you made, um, I like the first three bullets the most. <laughs> I, I thought it was a great list and uh, I want to vote for the first three especially. Well, of the, of the 18 and over, the CARC diversion and CBO referrals? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Still looking for one to put for the meeting after these. <laughs> so which of those would be great? If you have the data that we've been asking for about the CBO referrals, that would be great. It's been an ongoing theme. It will be key to the closed juvenile hall working group um, information. So that would be great. Um, yeah. But I wouldn't fight to have one over the other. I, okay. That has been a theme, and we've been waiting for a long time for the data on that. So that would be that would be great. And we've had a lot of public testimony about that as an issue, and it's a key issue, as I said, in the closed juvenile hall working group. So sure. So I I do believe that by September we could do a much more thorough job of discussing that that we've been able to do so far. So if it's the if that's what um, the commission wants, that's what we can set for that September meeting. 
I'd be interested in hearing um, about the CBO referrals in September as well. I agree with that as well. I saw Commissioner Shorter waving her hand too. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was waving. Um, it, okay, I didn't want to jump in in front of someone. Um, on the deep on the deep dives to be scheduled, are there either of these? If there was sort of a ranking of um, something that's more most urgent for the commission to um, to dive into or to have more information about relative to, um, I don't know, maybe the discussion around the um, um, the fact that and public comment was brought up that we're, you know we're losing after very Herculean efforts um, to save um, the Catholic charity you know program for the girls, um, or the fact that we have eighteen plus um, old um, you know adults um, legal you know majority age people and that's what forty five percent or over you know for engaged so i'm just trying to get an idea um it doesn't have to be addressed at this moment but is there sort of a, if you're looking at this in in terms of of um any you know what would be relatively urgent for us to know you know sooner rather than later i'm not trying to create a you know a hyper crisis but just you know um, so, so, so today we will do that kind of deeper dive on the placement population. So I think mm -hmm. hopefully that'll answer some of the questions around that this issue of placement and beds. Um, and, I, and then to me, I do think looking at that kind of initial time to detention here, I think about the things that are that were, are really, um, you know, Kind of at our doorstep of the things we need to really understand so that we mm -hmm. can work on the closure of this juvenile hall, really figure out how many beds we need detention right. wise in the city, um, and kind of what can that front end support of young people look like. So, to that degree, I do think doing that first kind of analysis of length of stay, like that time to detention hearing and who's staying and then who gets out the first day if they go before a judge anyway, and what does that tell us? Like, I think that mm -hmm. could really be an important conversation. Mm -hmm. um, in this moment, as we're trying to really solidify how many secure beds we might need, right? That can that CBO referral piece then ties very well into that question about mm -hmm. are we using alternatives and how? So right. I think they do dovetail nicely with the, some of the questions we need to um, answer to really plan forward on closing down this juvenile hall. Thank you. Right on. That's good to know. Hello, Commissioner. Uh, is that Commissioner Brecker, Commissioner Moses? Commissioner oh, Moses. Oh. Yeah. What? Thank you, Chief. Can you go back to the first chart demographic um, breakdown again? There's got to be a faster way for me to do this. Hold on a second. Hold on. Ah, yes. Yes, you can. On the juvenile probation by race, I see black 8.53. 8. Is, that, is that accurate? 
It's eight. It was eight youth for 53% of the population on Monday in the hall. I see. Yeah, so just over half of the young people in the hall on Monday. I see, just Monday only. Oh, okay. Because I saw that I was going drunk. I said, wow, that's great. So, for us. Okay, I have a quick question about, you know, the governor just raised it to, to get vaccination from 16 and over. How are we doing on that? I'm sorry, say that again, Commissioner? Vaccination, you know, it's now reduced from 16 and over, 16 years and over. Oh. Have they been, what, what are we doing in regards okay. to that? Any of our kids being vaccinated or what? Sure. So, so obviously the 12 to 15s, we haven't gotten rolled out yet. I actually, you know, I have to say, Commissioner, I don't, I realized I don't have Bobby Upal here tonight. He's actually in programming in the hall in this moment, um, working on something back there, and he could have given us the update on that. We have been offering um, the vaccine to our 16 and up kids. We get their parental consent. The young person decides if they want it. I think, um, I think I reported this last month that in the first turnaround, we had four young people and their families who were interested. And then when DPH went to actually give them the vaccines, they all changed their minds and said they didn't want it. Um, but I don't have an update for you tonight on it, but we'll make sure we get an update next month on the number of kids who we've been able to get to vaccine in detention. That would be good. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Commissioner Brockens, do you have your... Yeah, I just wanted to say to Commissioner Shorter, well, and to everyone that we're talking about what deep dive you want to take with the data, but it doesn't preclude our putting other things on the agenda. So I am concerned about, you know, the girls issue. We can put that on the agenda um, in addition to whatever deep dive we do with the data, just to clarify that. Absolutely. That's a great point, Commissioner. Um, if we are addressing the deep dive options, um, I heard there was, I, I think Chief Miller, you mentioned that there are very few kids or youth who are close to completing their high school diplomas. I'm wondering um, if we could address maybe educational programs um, that are provided for the youth. I would just like to learn a little bit more about that. Sure, and we can have, um, I think shortly, right, I think right before you actually came, joined the commission, Commissioner, was probably the last time that we had um, Chris present, who's the principal of the high school in the hall. Um, so we definitely could line him up to do another presentation. They are back in person. They may be the only San Francisco Unified High School back in person, um, but we could definitely, um, where I can work with Pauline on having him added back to do an update about what school looks like. That'd be great during the pandemic. And then is that, would that also address, um, and I just don't know, you can let me know if this isn't a thing, but are there also educational programs for those who um, need higher level education? There are, and we can talk about the access that our older young people have to classes at City College. That'd be fantastic, thank you. Any further questions or comments at this time before we move on with the chief's report? Sure. Um, so the next part of my report 
if there are somebody have a question um I think we're good okay so the next part is is our deep dive so i'm actually going to be turning it over so to Raina McKinnon, who needs the ball so that she can put up her PowerPoint, and she'll give you some background um, about her project she's been doing for probation. We are very grateful for this work and analysis, and it is exceptionally timely now that we're talking about this in the context of the girl shelter. So um, does Raina have the ball? Oh, good. Raina has the ball. Raina, I will turn it over to you. Thank you, Chief Miller. Um, so. Hello everyone, um, my name is Raina McKinnon. I'm a UC Berkeley Public Policy graduate student um, and I've been working with um, JPD over the last few months to study out of home placements in the juvenile justice system in San Francisco. Um, so I'll start by sharing my screen. I hope I forget to do that. Um, let's see, am I doing it? There we go. So I I think I should now be sharing my screen. Um, so I'll go ahead and oh, get started here. Just get a little get situated. Um, all right, so so this evening I'm going to present um, the, my findings to you on what I've learned about um, out of home placements. And my plan is to go through um, my slides. And then um, if folks could save um, questions for the end, that would be great. So I'll go ahead and get started. Um, so I had three goals um, for my project over the last few months. First, I wanted to understand the data on um, the out of home placement population in the San Francisco juvenile justice system. I, I wanted to identify challenges with out of home placements through data analysis and stakeholder interviews and then also identify alternative options for how um, the department could address these challenges and make some recommendations. Um, and I used a mixed methods approach, um, including data analysis, interviews of stakeholders and um, case studies. Um, and this is a quick agenda for my presentation and mostly I'll focus on uh, data analysis findings and get to some recommendations at the end. Um, so, I'll get started with the data analysis findings. Um, and I used several data sources in my analysis, including the monthly um, statistics that are presented at these meetings and some out of home placement mo monthly statistics that are collected by JPD and I believe are part of those um, monthly statistics. Um, and then the bulk of my analysis uses juvenile court history data for all young people who had an out of home placement disposition in 2019 or 2020. So this is um, this includes 92 individuals um, as well as some CWS CMS data on placements. Um, so more detail on placements for some of those individuals. Um, so I'll start with scope. Um, this is from this is data that you've already seen from um, the department's monthly data reports. The chart on the left. Um, shows that uh, young people and out of home placement make up a small proportion of uh, the total probation caseload um, in each month in 2020. And then on the right, um, you can see that young people who are in um, STRTPs, so congregate care placements or resource family placements or um, home based uh, family placements, make up only a fraction of all young people who are in out of home placement. 
Um, and I focused my research on these placement options because they're the primary options available for minors um, in uh, the foster care system. And um, some other statuses that young people could have who are in the yellow part of this chart um, could include um, the, being in the pre-placement stage, so pre-placement, pre-adjudication, or predisposition. Um, these individuals could be um, on AWOL, or they could be AWOL, they could be um, on home trial in transitional housing or in county jail on an adult criminal complaint. Um, and then the demographics I'm going to talk about are for the 92 individuals who had out-of-home placement dispositions in 2019 or 2020. Um, and this shows that um, like the overall probation population, um, youth of color make up um, nearly all young people in out-of-home placement. And here you can see that um, African-American youth are especially overrepresented in out-of-home placement. So here you can see that 63% of individuals um, in this population um, identify as African-American, whereas um, in, I believe in January 2021, African-American youth made up 51% of the total active probation caseload. Um, and so just the disparities are um, even larger in out-of-home placement. Um, and then the chart on the left shows that um, youth in out-of-home placement tend to be older teens. Um, so you can see that most young people are over 15. Um, and these are the ages of young people on their most recent out-of-home placement disposition date. Um, so their age at the start of out-of-home placement. And then the chart on the right shows that um, about 80% of youth in out-of-home placement are boys or um, young men, which um, is similar to the gender breakdown of the total probation caseload. Um, and it appeared that this data set I was using did not have a, gen a transgender option, um, which is why there's two gender options here. Um, and then I also had access to data on prior ch child welfare placements um, for this population. And I was only able to match a subset of um, the young people with the uh, CWS CMS data, which was where I had access to child welfare placement data. So this is only a subset of those um, 92 individuals. But among those um, who I was able to match, I, uh, I found that 45% had a prior home removal through the child welfare system. Um, and so this suggests that there is considerable overlap between out-of-home placement in the juvenile justice system and in the child welfare system in San Francisco. Um, and then I looked at the full juvenile court history of these 92 individuals, um, and I found that they tended to have fairly high levels of juvenile court involvement. Um, so this chart includes um, various measures of juvenile court involvement. Um, and I'll point out that on average, young people had eight referrals, um, 2.7 sustained petitions, and 1.7 out-of-home placement dispositions. Um, and you can also see that all young people had at least one sustained petition with a 707B charge. Um, then I looked at the offenses that were connected to out-of-home placement dispositions. Um, so these are not all offenses on all sustained petitions that these uh, 92 individuals um, have ever had. They're only the sustained petitions that led to an out-of-home placement disposition. Um, and this chart shows that robbery was um, the most common offense, and then um, that assault and theft were also common. 
And um, I was interested in investigating what might be going on for the 10 status offenses that led to an out of home placement disposition. Um, and so I looked into the juvenile court histories for the 9 individuals who had those 10 status offenses. Um, and I found that um, 1st, that 6 out of 10 of these dispositions occurred before 2019. And so um, I'll say that the juvenile court history includes the full history of these for these individuals. So, even though their placements or their um, out of home placement dispositions. Um, occurred in 2019 or 2020 and includes sort of their full history prior um, to, to that time as well. Um, and then all um, everyone who had a status offense that um, was connected to an out of home placement disposition had also had a prior sustained petition um, that included um, uh, a fairly serious offense, including um, assaults. Burglary, robbery, um, weapons offenses, or assault and battery. Um, and so this is just some information about what might have been going on for these um, uh, these 10 status offenses. Um, and then I looked into the types of placements that um, young people were in in 2020. And I found that the most complete data available on placement types. Um, was from the monthly statistics that you've seen. And um, this, this, so this chart shows that the proportion of young people in resource family placement, so in, in, a ho in home settings, um, increased during 2020. Um, and this looks like it was mostly driven by the fact that there were fewer young people in STRTPs or, in, or congregate care placements um, over the course of the year. And, and fewer young people in placement overall. Um, and then this is the same data as the prior slide, but showing um, the placements by location in each month in 2020. Um, and it shows that prior to the pandemic, around 20% of placements were in San Francisco. And then during the pandemic, um, as the total number of individuals or young people in placements decreased, um, the number of placements outside of the Bay Area and outside of California decreased. Um, and of course, this is um, the, the number of uh, placements outside of California would or decreased in connection to the decertification of out of state placements. And um, the one person who was in um, an out of state placement in December 2020 returned to California um, the following week at, as part of when California decertified out of state placements. Um, then I was interested in finding out how many placements young people had been in since January 1st, 2019. Um, and this was to learn about um, the amount of movement between placements that young people experience. And so I um, combined data from multiple data sets to estimate the number of placements per person um, in this time frame. And I found that on average, young people had been in 2.4 different placements over the last two years. Um, and this could be an undercount because I did not have complete data on resource family placements before December 2019, but it's also possible that some placements are double counted here. Um, and then I also looked at um, reasons placements ended, and I was particularly interested in AWOLs because I learned that that had been a challenge. Um, and so I looked at the placements that were recorded in the CWS CMS data, um, which had more detail around placements um, in 
for, so all placements since 2019 um, for those young people who had um, who were in that population of um, 92 youth who also had a placement in the um, CWS CMS data set. And I found that about half of all probation placements recorded in that system since 2019 ended with a young person running away from placement. Um, and it also showed that about 30% of placements um, ended successfully. So a quarter um, of placements ended with a child returning home for a trial visit and 5% ended with a child um, being moved to a lower level of care. Um, and then I'll again say that the CWS CMS data um, didn't have full information on resource family placements. So I think these um, these reasons placements ended should be most understood as um, uh, or relating to STRTP or congregate care placements. Um, and then I looked at um, how many young people had run away from placement at least once over this time frame. Um, and I found that 62% um, of um, young people had gone AWOL at least once since 2019, and that um, AWOLs were more common among girls, um, but there were many fewer girls in placement um, in this time frame. Um, and so I'm going to spend um, the next few minutes talking about um, out of home, the out of home placement challenges I identified in my study. Um, so there were four primary challenges I identified and the two um, with the gray arrows are the ones that I'm going to talk about um, in more depth today. Um, so first, um, there, uh, young people spend too much time in juvenile hall after an out of home placement disposition. Um, so what happens here is that um, young people end up spending a few or a basically two to four additional weeks in secure detention after receiving an out-of-home placement disposition from the court. And this is because it takes time for probation officers to find a placement match for each person. Um, and so the problem with having young people stay in the hall for these extra weeks are um, the usual problems with secure detention that are listed in this slide. Um, and the need I've identified is that um, JPD needs a non-secure temporary placement option where young people can stay prior to receiving their uh, full length placement match. And so I did a little bit of data analysis to figure out sort of the capacity needs for this kind of place temporary placement. So first I looked at um, the average amount of time young people spend in juvenile hall after their out of home placement disposition and found that on average, um, young people spend 25 days in the hall after their um, disposition date. And um, it was also interesting to see that um, only 52 out of the 92 uh, young people who I studied were in juvenile hall on their out of home placement disposition date, which suggests that um, some people receive an out-of-home placement disposition um, when they're not in juvenile hall. And these findings can be helpful in identifying how long um, young people should be able to stay in a temporary placement. And then I used monthly point-in-time numbers to estimate how many um, young people in juvenile hall are in the pre-placement stage on any given day. And so here you can see um, that at most there were 13 um, young people in the pre-placement stage on March 31st of 2020. 
Um, and so these just seeing the um, range of these numbers can be helpful in deciding on the capacity requirements. So how many beds um, might JPD need for temporary placements? Um, and then I identified three alternative ways the department could um, create temporary placement alternatives to juvenile hall for young people in this pre-placement period. Um, and so first, um, young people could, or sorry, JPD could secure temporary beds in a local STRTP, um, so a congregate care setting. Um, the second option is that the department could contract with a foster family agency to create an emergency foster care program that could be similar to a program at the human services agency um, that is uh, administered through a contract with alternative family services. Um, and the third option is that uh, the department could contract with a service provider to create an emergency intensive services foster care program that would be similar to um, a program at the human services agency um, called the hub that's administered by the Seneca family of agencies. Um, and so I'm going to uh, quickly talk about my recommendations and then uh, speed through the other um, challenge. So uh, my first recommendation is that uh, JPD reserves at least 15 temporary placement beds um, using a combination of strategies um, for young people uh, while they're waiting for their out-of-home placement match. Um, the department should allow young people to stay in temporary placements for up to 90 days, um, but the goal should be that most young people only stay for three weeks or less. Um, and uh, they should contract with a foster family agency to create an emergency foster care program modeled after the program at HSA. Um, and this should be the, pri the, the primary way of um, uh, placing young people temporarily. However, the department should also acquire um, temporary placement beds in a local STRTP. And then finally, um, JPD should consider allowing young people to stay in temporary placements for the full placement period um, if the temporary placement is going well. Um, and so I'm just going to talk about this very briefly, but I also found that there were a few um, resource family uh, placement options. Um, and so the gist of the problem is that while uh, JPD does a pretty good job recruiting relatives or kin resource families, the department only works with one non-relative or kin resource family um, and so and does not uh, work with any resource families who are certified to provide intensive services foster care. And so um, young people who don't have a relative or kin who can serve as a resource family or require a higher level of care um, don't have access to a family-based placement option. Um, and so uh, the department uh, should recruit and retain uh, or recruit, sorry, more, more relative or kin resource families, including families that are certified to provide intensive services foster care. Um, and I'll skip directly to the recommendations on this, um, on this challenge. So my primary recommendation is that um, the, um, the department should contract with a foster family agency to recruit and retain resource families. Um, and then uh, the second recommendation is that uh, JPD should continue to refer young people who have been affected by commercial sexual exploitation or who are at risk to Family and Me. And Family and Me is a pilot um, intensive services foster care program 
that um, is run by Freedom Forward and already exists in San Francisco. Um, and then the final recommendation is that um, JPD should identify a liaison to attend monthly family and me meetings so that the department can stay updated on the implementation of the pilot um, program and um, learn about opportunities to refer young people. Um, so thank, thank you everyone for listening and I'd be happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much, Raina. Um, that was a very interesting presentation. Um, I'll, I'm still thinking through some, I'll, I'll have, I have a few questions, but I'm gonna hand it off to other commissioners first. Um, any commissioners at this time have questions for Raina? Uh, Commissioner Shorter, I see your hand raised. Yes. Sorry, I turned my video off because um, everyone keeps freezing oh, no. when my video is on. So let me get visible again. Um, thank you um, for your your um, your work and your 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 report. Um, you'll, you'll find, uh, and I know you're just here with us temporarily, but I'm big on comparative analyses. Mm -hmm. So what does this all mean? Um, when when there's you said it's about 25 days on average that a youth is waiting at the hall for placement i don't know what that means is that um that's that's 25 days sounds like a long time but i don't know is that what is the is that um are we doing better because it's 25 days are we are we trending that it's taking longer? So I don't really know what that means um, beyond the con, you know, what can you put that more into context? And also, um, so, and also, what does it mean in terms of um, uh, this may not be, a, you know, a, a question directly for you, but what does that mean in terms of the um, probation officers uh, looking for placement? Um, are uh, clearly we're competing with other, you know, jurisdictions. Um, that's always been the case, but, um, again, I don't know what that 25 days means. Are our officers is are that are, are we doing better? Are we able to, to place kids actually faster, um, than other jurisdictions or are we, are 25 days just like, wow, compared to, you know, the 10 counties around us. It only takes them five days, so mm -hmm. I, I don't know what that means. Yeah, that's a great question, and um, I, I didn't have the opportunity to compare um, that number to what has been going on in other counties. I think something that could be interesting that, that I also didn't look into is um, how, I don't know, those 25 days, how big, of, how much of that is the as a proportion of like the total amount of time a young person is staying in juvenile hall. Um, and I don't know if Katie or uh, Chief Miller might already have some kind of sense of um, how long that is compared to their total stay. Um, but I, um, yeah, I don't actually um, have any kind of comparative um, analysis on that point. But thank you for that question. Mm -hmm. And I, I would just add, I think it is a really good question, Commissioner, and something that would be interesting for us to look at. 
relative to other points in time or other places. And, you know, I think the biggest takeaway is that, you know, when they've hit that point, a court is saying that they can be in the community given the right resources, right? Um, I think another thing, and I don't think, Raina, I don't think this is something that you had a chance to look at, but the other question is, like, you know, to, to your point, like, what is our placement unit during that, doing during that time? How many packets are they sending out per young person, for example? How many interviews is a young person having? Like, how, and, and you know, I've, I've seen young people in my brief time here where the placement unit has sent out, like, 14 packets to different group homes trying to find a good match. Um, and then there's times when it's just a more obvious fit out of the gate, right? Um, but it, but I, you know, I think it would be an interesting thing for us to be doing. And I think, um, and I think Raina, I know that there's going to be a written report that you're finalizing your written report that comes yes. out. I don't want to jump the gun and, and say that it might be in there, but can you talk about if it's in there? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't believe it's in there. I do talk about what the placement process includes and so, um, sort of, and. A little bit about why it takes um, it can take up to 3 weeks or sometimes longer to find a placement, but I um, don't talk about how many um, uh, placement or how many packets are sent to different um, STRTPs and, and things like that, which would have been really interesting to, to get into. And, and we could even like share that from our staff at another time too. Um, and, you know, 1 of the challenges that I think we talked about in some meetings before you were here. And I am not saying this to put any onus on the kids for us finding them placements. It is not their responsibility. It is ours. Um, but one challenge that we've had, for example, is, um, you know, uh, the kids, a lot of the kids in the hall kind of collectively deciding they were going to refuse to do their interviews <laughs> for placements. And so, like, it kind of goes in waves, just like all teenage trends go in waves, right? And, you know, to me, the bigger question is, of course, why? Why and how do we address the fact that they don't want to go to the places we are trying to send them? Um, but that has been a really difficult process for us this year of setting up interviews and having kids say, I'm just not doing it, I'm not doing it. Um, so it speaks to the need for more relevant matches um, and also speaks a little bit to some of our challenges. Um, I want to jump in because I was supervising Raina all along, and so um, I, she did. She thought of all the things, and I can't wait for you to read her report because it, I think it's quite amazing. Um, one thing is that the sort of relativity of how long our out-of-home placement kids spend in custody as compared to other kids would be a component of an average length of stay analysis. So part one is looking at detention hearing, um, but if we look after that, then we would be looking at how long do kids stay in and get transferred out? How long are the out-of-home placement kids there? What are trials looking like? So another pitch for doing a deep dive on that. Um, and then I want to give I want to give a shout out to Mila, the new supervisor of the placement unit, who's super data-driven and recently met with me and my colleague, Selena Cuevas, and was like, I want to keep track of all the referrals we make, how many packets we send out, what are the responses we're getting, which STRTPs are saying no and why. So we're going to be building that out in our case management system, which has it hasn't been there. Um, no one, no one was like, I want to keep track of everything before. So yay, Vila. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to say is that in regards to that 25, those 25 days, um, and the fact that our placement unit is doing all this work to try to make 
the, the match that's going to be the long-term match. I think that's why Raina is recommending temporary placements because those could be a bridge. So if JPD has dedicated emergency beds in homes and or SDRTPs, those will be guaranteed beds. <laughs> and that means you don't have to wait in detention because you can go to this temporary placement while we figure out where you're going next. Like while we get the, your resource family, aunt, background checked and whatever else needs to happen. So I just wanted to kind of connect those dots. Thank you. And I like I like all of Commissioner Shorter's questions when we talked earlier today and that. I like the way you're thinking. The, the question is always compared to what? <laughs> I'm known for that. Thank you, Maria. And thanks to your um your your team. It was a, a really very fruitful and um um very informative meeting. So I, I really appreciate what you all are doing. I do actually have one very quick follow-up question, if I might. I don't want to hog the mic, um, oh, Mr. President. No, no, absolutely. I, I agree with uh, <laughs> with Maria and with Rena. I, I appreciated your question. I was kind of along the lines of what uh, I was going to ask as well, but I wanted to go ahead and hear your next question. Thank you. I, I just my my question is, is really um, uh, the 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 question that's not uh, and um. What are the dollars and I'm also interested in sort of the dollars and cents. I don't think that there's any incentive. I mean, we're not, you know, there's no incentive to, you know, having 25 day period. But again, you know, I don't know. I don't know what value to place on that. Right. Because I don't know what it means that for my my last inquiry. But um, but also um, it would be good to know in terms of what's the rate, what's the of. Uh, um, so there's the search for for placement, but are is there any trend there in terms of you know are there more available placements or are there fewer? What are the draw? You know what are are there? You know I don't want to get too far into the weeds on that, but um, I don't you know I would be interested in knowing a little bit more. Maybe it's in the it's in the fuller report um in in terms of what's what's placement like these days what's the status of of placement are there i know that there um and and when i say dollars and cents i also mean too in terms of are there any bureaucratic um you know sort of delays or just things that are just normal in the process we know in san francisco <laughs> city county government and it's actually kind of the same everywhere else but you know we all like to kind of cry about it a little bit more i think than everybody else elsewhere but um things take a while you know you know is it is it even possible to have a placement even if we had you know the perfect place for a kid within 15 days is it even possible is there something you know with regard to payment or from the city you know or the county or I don't know. So I'm trying to talk bureauc bureaucracy, but I'm, I'm not always the best at it. I understand it very well, just not fully articulate in its arts. So yeah, are those um, issues? Yeah. Yeah. So um I'll say I didn't really do like full process analysis of the um out of home placement matching process. Um, I did learn that um, 
probation okay. officers often start the placement matching process even before the um, uh, disposition hearing or when the outcome placement disposition is made. And so, um, mm -hmm. and I, I did learn that it seemed like the placement unit had um, updated their process fairly recently um, and, and makes an effort to, to um, you know, go through the process quickly and that not everything is within the control of probation officers because it, you know, involves communication with STRTPs and such. Um, but I think it would be valuable to do, like, you know, more analysis on what goes on in that process. Um, uh, and then also the, um, from what I could tell, the number of placement options does seem to be decreasing over time. Um, there are fewer congregate care options following mm -hmm. continuum of care reform when mm -hmm. some group homes um, have to close. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are also not out of state placement options um, right. now. So I think that's the gist of what I learned, um, but I'm sure there's a lot more knowledge in, in this sure. room about those issues. Right, I, I can jump in a little bit and say, you know, once a youth is committed to placement, then it's that state fee that's paying for the placement. There's no financial incentive to keeping a young person in juvenile hall <laughs> that we need to. And in fact, if, if we can't kind of crack this, this challenge for all of us, it's going to affect mm -hmm. how many beds we would need and anything that comes next, right? So mm -hmm. that's why it's such critical timing. Um, you know, one thing that I will say that um, I, that I uh, anticipate is in Raina's report and is something that we definitely saw during COVID is that one reason that placement that was taking longer for kids to get out mm -hmm. into placements, even once they've been accepted into a placement, was because group homes, just like juvenile hall, had to start quarantine beds. Mm -hmm. So a number of our group homes had like a set number of quarantine beds. So they may mm -hmm. expect one of our, this was primarily last well, spring, summer, and fall, they may accept a young person. We would know they had a bed there, but we'd mm -hmm. have to wait till one of those beds opened up to send them. And so, like, we had one young man who waited for two months to go to the placement that kind of everybody, including him, agreed was the right fit for him. But mm -hmm. he was in the hall for a long time, literally waiting for the quarantine bed to kind of open up there. And mm -hmm. in his case, for that state to start accepting out of state travelers again. Mm -hmm. So, so, so Raina, I'm kind of looking at you as I'm saying this, but right, this was this interesting phenomenon that we also saw this year of how it made it even longer for some of our kids because of the restrictions of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and to um, Chief Miller's point about um, the the high proportion of youth who are in out of home or who have an out of home placement status in the hall, I can also share um, this data point. Oh, here we go. So this chart, this yellow line here shows that um, at, at least 30% of um, people in juvenile hall at, at, on these point in time counts. So I think these are like the last day of the month um, in each month in 2020 um, were um, had an out of home placement status. And so that just shows something about how, you know, um, Moving these kids out of the home into a temporary placement might reduce the, the capacity needs um, in an alternative to juvenile hall. 
I wanted to add one thing to the, your question, Commissioner Shorter, which is that I think what Raina shows in her report is that our bureaucracy can learn from another bureaucracy, which is child welfare. Um, and that also kind of dovetails with a presentation we had previously from the Youth Law Center, where child welfare actually has gone farther than probation across the state in um, pursuing continuum of care reform and really pursuing home-based placements. Um, and that San Francisco's Human Service Agency does offer some good models for things that we could be doing with our population as well. Great. Great. And I feel like Maria just teed me up to like finish her sentence, <laughs> which is to say that, you know, that is something that we're looking at doing, right? So we do have funding set aside that we know we can use to fund um, new uh, placement options for us in San Francisco. So our intent is to actually enter into an agreement with a foster family agency to create some of those beds for exactly what Raina is recommending. Um, we, uh, it's a city process. We've got to go through a city procurement process. We'll have to be going out through a uh, request for proposals process and we're working right now with the city on getting that launched. Um, but it is, you know, I'm so excited that we actually get to say to all of you, like, yes, we are going to make 1 of these recommendations. 1 of our 1st steps and I see commissioner Brodkin smiling. And I know it's because this, the, the seed for this came out of 1 of the program committee meetings, right? And it's really become this. Hopefully, viable path that we're working on getting up and running. That's excellent. Thank you for the context, Chief. Uh, Commissioner Brutkin. Yeah, I am so excited that you are implementing one of the recommendations and that we had such a successful program committee that sort of got us started with alternative family services and we'll see how it goes. So that's fabulous. Um, I, you know, to put some of this in context, um, Andrea, I mean, it's a small number of kids, but it is 45% of the kids in the juvenile hall are at some stage of the placement process and 51%, I guess, in your data was like they run away. So this is not the world's most successful uh, option for lots of kids and we have to really work on it. Um, so I, I'm very interested in one of the things you talked about, which is why are they turning down so many of our kids? Who's turning them down and why and what can we do to, you know, is that because they're terrible places? Is that because the match wasn't right? Is that because the kids were fire setters or, you know, it, to learn more, if somebody's sending out 14 packets, we learn, we want to make this be as good a process as possible. So I think learning more about that and learning more about these placement failures and all, all these young people who run away from group homes. And I worry that group homes and these placements are just not necessarily great places, which is why I'm so thrilled you're doing the resource family thing that might work out better. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I know judges like placements. They were, they feel like they've done something. So they send the kid to placement, maybe, maybe going home with the family with lots of supports 
would be an option to a judge that thought differently. It does remind me that part of the task is training judges and conversations with judges. And I don't know to what extent the probation department has actually uh, thought about that. And the whole placement issue is, is an important place to start. I remember years ago, we had regular trainings with the judges and regular discussions about you know, options and possibilities. So that is certainly something to think about. Um, so, but learning about the runaways, learning about the rejections, um, and then having, as you recommended, Raina, a, a place for young people to await <laughs> placement so they're not awaiting in the juvenile hall. Um, it's, it's a misuse of the juvenile hall and finding that alternative is really, hopeful. But I, I do wonder if some of these young people could return home with the appropriate amount of support for their families, helping them get jobs, giving them stipends, giving them, you know, there's all kinds of things you can do for a family. That's a hell of a lot cheaper than the thousands of dollars a month, even though it's state and federal money that we, that we, that we mm -hmm. spend. So, I don't know when the right time in this meeting is to talk about this disaster with Catholic Charities and the implications for sort of bids in the future and not losing bids in the future because I'm pretty wound up about it and I feel like it's just been a collective failure of our system that we have lost the only girls <laughs> only girls home in the city and I feel I feel like we all have a responsibility for that. Um, and that it is a place where, you know, the welfare, H, what do we call it now? DSS, DHS, what, what? HSA? HSA, look, I'm old enough to tell you that they've had three different names and I can't get them straight, <laughs> but HSA and JPD particularly, you know, this is a big crossover population. For instance, we could have had in that girl's home half kids in the foster care system, half kids in the JP. If we'd planned ahead month, now we're talking years <laughs> of seeing this problem happening. So I, I, I would like to make a recommendation maybe later in the meeting about sort of putting together some kind of multi-department effort to to take collective responsibility for having the beds that we need, either holding on to the beds that we have and improving them. And if we think they're not good, you know, doing everything way ahead of time to save them uh, or finding now maybe what would be the right beds for girls. So, um, yeah. So that's thing I want to say in the meeting um, uh, and, and, and on this issue, just to say that I'm so glad you did the report. Placement is so important. It's a huge number of our kids in the juvenile hall. It's the most expensive thing that we do. And um, there's just, it's a very imperfect system. And I love what you're doing with alternative family services. And um, you should report back. We'll see if it works. Yeah. I don't know if you want me to speak to those th the things you raised now or not. I'm not sure where we are. Ask our chair. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I wanted to kind of maybe dovetail from where 
Commissioner Brodkin brought that up because I, I want to ask Rain a question. Um, one of the questions I had, I believe you mentioned that girls ran away at predominantly higher rate in your presentation than uh, than boys. And I wanted to uh, just see if you could elaborate on that. And then I kind of sprung this. I had the same kind of connection to the Catholic Charities from public comment. So I just wanted to just ask about that specific item. And then I also had a question for um, Chief Miller uh, afterwards, but if we could maybe elaborate on that um, a little bit. Sure, so um, this slide shows that, um, and this is just among 58 individuals. So this isn't, um, you know, the full population of um, girls who have been in placement, but, um, and, you know, it's also off of fairly low base, but this shows that um, 13 of 16 girls had gone AWOL at least once since 2019. Um, of, you know, of those who were in this data set. And so, um, and in, in some conversations with um, different stakeholders, I learned that um, just girls do tend to run away from placement um, more frequently. And there were some, um, some reasons that congregate care, sorry, congregate care placements seem to be um, less uh, beneficial for girls potentially um, because of sort of developmental reasons. Um, and so uh, it, it seems to me that uh, increasing the number of resource family placements could um, be a, a good way of providing a, a, a better placement option for girls in particular. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, I think this, because it's only 16 individuals, I think this might be kind of like a misleading statistic, but um, but it still shows that the, the AWOL rates are pretty high um, for girls. Understood, thank you. Um, and then for uh, Chief Miller, maybe also for Commissioner Brodkin, I mean, um, it, 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 the discussions that have had been had at the Blue Ribbon Panel and the work group, has this, uh, come up, uh, you know, as something that, you know, has been in uh, part of the reform that's being discussed because it seems like a no brainer to kind of figure out how we can create the bed space in the community um, and cut that 25 day, you know, uh, time down as much as possible. And I don't know if it would be at the new uh, facility that would be, you know, built or, or if it would be a separate facility or how it would look, um, okay. but just, how, but just, you know, in the community or, or so forth, but just like, I was just curious how the discussion has been around this issue at those two working groups and if it has been something that's been addressed, you know, substantially in the talks. Sure. So it's come up in the work groups. I just not been focused on in this way. This is, I mean, Reina's work here is the first time that we see all of this in one place like this, and we're so grateful for her doing it. Um, but you know, I think that the 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 what I really appreciate what Buck Commissioner Rodkin said, and and what Molly said during public comment is we need to make sure we have beds and the right kinds of beds for every kid who needs somewhere to be who can't be at home, right? I don't think we should be constrained by what we knew in the past for what we need in the future. If we think that, you know, more kind of foster families or relative family placements are, are maybe would offer more hope and girls would maybe be more likely to stay put, we need to try that. We need to look at the fact that we're willing as a system to pay $14,000 a month to send a kid to a group home, but so much less to their family, to their relative to support them. And I think, you know, my hope, I have a few hopes. 
Um, one hope is that because the state has defunded out-of-state placements, it understands that it's going to have to welcome creative thinking and investment in different ways in the in the people who will actually house and care for our kids, right? And so that may open up different kinds of financial flexibility at the state, but that seems to always take a really long time. So then locally, what are we willing to do? And you know that big question of can we identify members of our community who would serve that role for our young people and especially our girls? I think Raina's suggestion about making sure we're tapping into the resource families available, foster families available for girls who've been involved in commercial sexual exploitation is hugely important that that whole system is being set up. We want to make sure that it serves our girls. They've had such histories like that. And then I think the one thing I want to add into this conversation that hasn't been said really came up for me in a report that I read that the Young Women's Freedom Center put out a few months ago. Um, where they talked to so many young people who had been involved in the system and particularly girls and gender expansive young people. And, you know, there's there's this there's a section of their report that so stick, stays with me. And it was one young person saying, I wanted to be in San Francisco and the system sent me away. And then there was another young person saying, I wanted to be out, I knew I needed to be outside San Francisco at that time. And everybody kept me here. So. I do think it's not just do we have enough beds in the city, it's do we have enough beds and are we supporting the families of our kids in the way that create viable options that meet the needs of each youth and how we also value youth voice in that part of it. Because I think it's really important that they're part of the planning and that they're identifying the place that they feel safe and cared for and will we'll give a chance to. Um, so all that to say, I think that this, Trying this kind of foster family path is really important. I do want to acknowledge to you know, Commissioner Brodkin's point, like we did try to offer up a lot of things at this stage in the game to keep the girls shelter open. We offered to pay the full cost. We suggested bringing in child welfare kids. Um, you know, we talked about those things. It just wasn't going to happen at this point. Um, you know, I also would suggest that it's worth us continuing to talk to Edgewood about their ability to serve our kids right there and also an, a San Francisco STRTP. Um, what additional supports could we offer for that for the kids for whom it's a good fit? Um, you know, and then it's really just this question of how do we collectively find those families that will serve that role for San Francisco kids and what, what support do we give them? And I think foster family agencies can really help with that. So I'm just so excited that we get to try that out. But I don't want to lose fact that we do also still have an SCRTP here for girls. And then the one thing I also wanted to add in about boys, when we put boys in the, in the sunshine for a minute, is that in our conversations with Catholic Charities, part of what also came up was the deficit they're running for the boys' home. And the city is filling that gap to make sure that we don't lose that resource because we do have many more boys placed there than girls are were placed in the shelter. So we're actively working on that right now too. Not, and when I say working on it, just making it happen, not debating it. Thank Wait. you. Um, and, and also picking up the thread that Commissioner Brodkin mentioned about the judges, has there been talks with the judges about their role in this process and how we can, um, you know, obviously transition a little bit more to this, you know, model that we're discussing? So, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think the judges, I don't want to speak for them, but I will because they're not here. <laughs> if you're not at the table on the menu. So, you know, I would say that 
I think our judges would tell you they do not go from zero to 60. By and large, they do not order out of home placement for a young person until they've tried placing that young person at home, tried placing them with another family member, right? That they've probably tried placing closer to San Francisco before they go farther. So they would likely say that they do keep that in mind, right? That this isn't the first thing that's happening by and large when a young person's coming through the system. Um, but I do think it's a great question, President Ariano. Like, what supports do they want to see us as a system? Um, offering to young people's families, either their nuclear family or their relatives to try to, you know, keep them at home and caring for them there. I've had some of those conversations, particularly with our placement judge. Um, and uh, he's very interested in, in those conversations as well. And in that question of can we use foster families to meet this need? He's very, very interested in this. Great. Thank you um, to Raina and Chief and Maria for answering my questions um, and uh, following up with Commissioner Brockens as well, um, Commissioner Shorter. Uh, Commissioners Maldonado, Chu, Moses, Vingola, any questions at this time? I do. I do. It's more, it's more of a comment than a question, right? Um, this, this is a hard conversation for me, when, especially when it comes to young ladies, you know, being in foster care and being and you know and, and placement homes right um right now i'd just like to know did you ever have opportunity to kind of talk to a foster parent a foster child uh you know somebody that actually ran away from a foster home or a placement did they did you ever do your research and ever have opportunity to talk to a, a young person um, unfortunately, I didn't have an opportunity to talk to um, someone who had experienced placement, which was, I was, right. I was disappointed, uh, but it just didn't end up working out. It was a pretty short um, term project, but I really wish I had been able to do that. No, I definitely, I definitely appreciate your work. Like I said, this is, um, it's kind of close to home, but you know, like Commissioner Brockett has said, it's all of the above when it comes to young ladies, right? I've been through a lot of things in my life, but I never compare what a young person goes through, especially a young lady, when it comes to being placed somewhere where, you know, you're getting abused or something's going on in that household. And, you know, I know, I know a few foster parents, right? And, you know, some, you know, some of them, you know, one, I know one foster parent who's actually, you know, for me is five star, right? She is just awesome. You know, like all her kids stayed for five years, right? I mean, yeah, she don't, she, you know, she's, you know, she's strict, you know, you're in the house by eight, you're going to school, you, you know, you, and every one of her kids have went to college or working in one of the hospitals and, and, you know, it's just like, she's just super amazing. And then I go into these homes where they have foster kids, right? Where, you know, I'd be like, why, why would you even think about giving this person someone's child, right? So, I mean, for me, it's, for me, also, it's you know, it, it's, it's hard, you know, it's, you know, especially when you talk about young women, right? It, it's hard to have, you know, place. And, and that's why you get your, your, your run, your runaway rate is so high, right? And, you know, 16, when you said 16, that, that, that's a, you know, you kind of doing percentage there, right? But out of the 16, 14 of them ran away, right? So at the end of the day, that tells you, so if you did 190 of them probably done ran away. So at the end of the day, um, it's hard for, you know, especially when it comes to young ladies, right? Like, how do you place them somewhere where they comfortable and you know they're not just comfortable where they're safe at because you know we 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 kind of look we kind of turn our head and you know look 
you know, look, look the other way when, you know, um, things are happening. And I say the pandemic was, and that's why, you know, I run a youth center. So the pandemic was the worst thing I ever seen when it came to like what was happening to young people. Cause you know, some of them young people got in, imprisoned. You know what I mean? Once, once the pandemic hit and they couldn't go outside and all that. So it was, it made the situation even worse. So, you know, it's even worse. So, I mean, at the end, I know worse is not a word, but it made it even worse at the end of the day um, that, you know, that that happened, you know, the pandemic and everything else. So, you know, it, you know, for me, it, it, it really, it really, it really connects to, you know, some of the work that I do. And I know, I know the challenges with it and it's not, you know, it's not a solution and it's not one solution. And it's not about finding, you know, like one foster parent or one, you know, placement home or whether Catholic charity can take a few. Catholic charity was doing great. They had somewhere to go, but nobody wanted to go to Catholic charity. Every All the young ladies had to complain about what was going on in Catholic charities. So it was, it was, you know, it, it was, it's, it's, it was a challenge, but, you know, and then it was a safe haven for some, but, you know, like I said, you know, doing this work is like I, um, like that is like we, I mean, what do we do? You know, as as not just as the work we do as uh, civil service, but what do we do as you know adults and as you know as mothers and fathers and everything else that come along? What do we do? You know, and how do we make it better? What we do is we try to find something where, you know, we have to communicate with our young people and, you know, let them know that, you know, you don't have to go in, for me, it's always been, you don't have to go into a system to get service, right? You don't always have to be a part of this statistic or this data to get service. And that's, you know, that's what I always say. And I do, and I do what I do is because, you know, I don't, I don't need you to be going into a system. I need you to be, you know, feeling good about, you know, and feeling, you know, comfortable with where you go when it comes to going somewhere and being safe, right? So for me, it's, I mean, it's hard. It's no, it's no, we can sit here and talk about it all day, but the reality of what really goes on in communities and in life when it comes to young ladies is just like, it's, I mean, it's, it, 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 it's, it's not, it's not, a, you know, it's hard for, you know, like I said, it's for me, it's just a hard challenge, especially when working with young ladies and, you know, working with young men is just, you know, it's just bad, but, you know, sometimes, you know, young ladies' stories and, you know, some of the things they go through in life is just, like, not comparable to, you know, what it be. And like I said, I was just having a comment, and I'm sorry that, you know, like, every sometimes, you know, I speak, you know, when I go places and um, people ask me to say something, I don't, I don't never speak for my community because I always say my community has a voice. They know how to talk. All you have to do is ask them a question, right? The same thing with you, you know, when you're doing this, work right it's like sometimes let, let me talk to the people that you know that's having the, the issues right are uh, doing the runaways let me i'm gonna do data let me talk to the people that's bringing the data about right so sometimes as you do this research I always say you know let me talk to the ones that's having the issues Thank you, uh, Commissioner Singola, for saying that. I just wanted to offer up that um, Raina did want to speak to young people who had experienced out-of-home placement in San Francisco, and we reached out to our social workers and our probation officers in placement and reentry, and they were able to identify some young people who thought they might be interested, and we were going to offer incentives for the interview, but yeah. ultimately the interviews didn't work out. And I think that the pandemic actually um, made that harder because it was like a cold call, talk to some random stranger. Um, but we did really try, and I know that um, Raina cites that in her, in her report as a shortcoming of the report. 
Yeah. Um, I do want to also highlight that the Young Women's Freedom Center report does exactly that. It is the voices of young people and their experiences, and it has a section on yeah. placement. And so I think that's a good supplement to this work. Yeah. Yeah, I know I'm well. Um, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Um, I believe Commissioner Moses, did you have a comment? Yeah, yeah. I just Go have ahead. a quick question for the 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 presentation was very very good. I really enjoy it. My question is, you know, for her, the high percentage of African American at YGC is very high. Then also too, in terms of you know, placement from outside. Did you notice any, did you talk to any grandparents who care, you know, about, you know, placement outside? Because some of them don't like to see their kids being sent away. And I was wondering, did you have the opportunity to interview or to, do you have any statistic on that? Um, I, I did not um, have an opportunity to talk to any grandparents of um, young people in placement, but I, I did learn that um, um, many young people are, are placed outside of San Francisco um, and that there are, you know, um, potentially opportunities to increase placements in, in San Francisco, but there are also challenges um, with finding uh, beds in San Francisco. Um, and. Just to your point about the um, disparities in um, African American youth in placement, it it is really dramatic. Um, All right. Okay. Okay. I'm just curious. I thought maybe you have the opportunity to to look into that. Okay. Thank you. Sure. I do want to highlight, Commissioner Moses, that. Um, Raina did find that all but one of our resource families are kinship. So they're, they are, most of our kids are placed with their family members. Um, and we only have one resource family, foster family placement that's not a family member. Um, right. And I think that uh, our social worker, Rhonda Williams, also spoke to that. And she really works closely with families um, to make, to get them to be part of this like formal system of care so that they can. Um, receive the funding that they would if they were a foster care family. Another thing that Rena's report cites is that um, currently without a foster family agency, those families, those grandparents and aunts and uncles don't really get anything but money. So they don't get any right. like 24 hour caseworker, they don't I get know. extra therapy or anything like that. And so that's another benefit of working with a foster family agency is that's exactly the kind of services that they provide so that a grandparent feels comfortable and like they will be supported with someone they can call 24 hours a day who will literally come to the house at any time if they need that um, or whatever else they may need help with to really support sure. them to be the resource that they want to be for their for their family members. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Commissioner Chu. Thank you. I, I do want to strongly echo all of the fellow commissioners um, focus and concerns and questions as well as all the tremendous. Um, appreciation for Ms. McKinnon's report. It's excellent. I think this was an excellent deep dive. It's a, a great way to start off this deep dive program. Um, I do wish that we had gotten the slide before and, and if we did, I apologize. I missed it. Um, I think. 
it went a little bit fast for me for trying to digest everything because there is a lot here um, and I do appreciate that there's so much for us to talk about. Um, focusing on the questions that everyone has been focusing on so far, when I hear that there's a two to four week um, sort of delay between disposition and out of home disposition and release from detention, coming from the child welfare background, this is quite a large number to me, regardless of how it compares to other folks um, in the child welfare system. When we get an order regarding placement, it happens within a couple of days. And I, I do wonder, um, I think Chief Miller, or maybe it was Miss um, McKee mentioned that there's a, a placement judge. And I wonder if that placement judge knows of that delay and how they would feel about it. They do, okay. Um, sure. Can I jump in for one second? Of course. I should have said that. So, you know, when, when young people are in custody waiting for placement, they're on placement calendar every week. So they're continu we're continually having to go into that courtroom and explain to the court every step we're taking, all the applications we put out there, what their status is. So it is getting continual review. And I would add that um, the other piece that I think goes to your, your question, Commissioner, is that for a number of our young people. So I think a lot of kids in the child welfare system may not have a history of as many unsuccessful placements as our kids do. And so very often the reason a lot of placements are no longer on the table for them is it may have already been tried either here or when they were in that system. So. Thank you for that. And I do also, um, I was very appreciative to see a slide comparing child prior sorry, prior child welfare removals um, from our systems, because as we know, the systems aren't technical. Well, they actually are technically linked, uh, but they really are. We see that in a lot of uh, overlapping populations. So I, I appreciate that that was addressed in today's report. Um, I also wonder, and this again, is just my lack of knowledge, how early we start matching. Um, I don't know if that process starts only after a disposition order. I would hope that if it does start then that perhaps we could pick it up sooner. Um, I'm not familiar with the packets that are referenced, but it seems like those are perhaps informational packets and uh, invitations to come on board and be part of this program. So perhaps if we could start really focusing on um, even potential, and I realize that might seem like unwarranted work if the dispo ends up not being out of home, but I think um, in order to better serve the, the youth who are having this delay, perhaps a little bit of double work might be necessary here. Um, also in the child welfare system, we do talk a lot about non-relative fictive kins or NERFOMs. Um, and so I would really hope that if that's not a phrase or um, something that we really think about here in our juvenile probation system, perhaps we can start picking up that lingo and using that idea of extended family. So I might have, um, a neighbor who's not related to me, but they are, they help me with childcare every once in a while. And so my child, if they were to be involved in either system would be very comfortable being placed with the neighbor, um, as a, a fictive kin, essentially. So mm -hmm. I would encourage, um, even upon 1st contact, really talking to families, encouraging them to think beyond just their, um, biological relationships. Absolutely. Thank you, Commissioner. Commissioner Shorter, do you have another question? Yes, I do. I know we've got to move along in the, um, this is um, just really uh, very rich um, discussion. Um, I think there's three things I just wanted to, um, to 
put on the table here. One, and I'm speaking somewhat um, um, archivally, <laughs> um, this issue of the girls, um, the sort of greater propensity for running away um, or leaving placement. Um, I think that 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 appears to be a a um, a long range phenomena. Um, I'm going back to um, I don't you know I'm going back to the 1990s and had a issued um, a similar report on the status of girls in um, juvenile in San Francisco's juvenile justice system, and certainly it was a um, a great deal of focus on girls experience and out of placement and the numbers sound the same to me um you know and this was you know again several years ago and issued it uh, when i was um um along with um dan mackler and, and others from cjcj and it became something of a of a um you know groundbreaking report uh because there hadn't been much focus on the issues and challenges of girls within the system uh, are within our, our particular system. But out of home placement um, was, as I recall, um, you know, one of the, the greater features of that report. And so the, it feels a little bit like deja vu uh, in that regard. Um, the second point is I wanted to, to really thank um, uh, the chief for, for um, you know, also noting that issue that um, Young Women's Freedom Center, and I, I have worked with Young Women's Freedom Center over the years, um, and it's it different uh, carnations. Um, and the issue around gender expansive, yes, right, gender, gender identity. Um, that is, I think, is 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 an issue that cannot be overlooked. Um, so if you are a you know, LGBTQ identified kid, or you're questioning um, to, to, to move outside of the, <laughs> out of San Francisco um, into a place that may may not be as, as, as inclusive uh, and supportive, that is a very real factor. And I do recall, and in fact, I do know um, also from my time on the, on the Commission on the Status of Women that this is, this is something I think we want to pay closer attention to. And then last not least, um, is um, it's, you know, um, the, the, the process um, itself, it's, you know, we're not presuming that any of the judges are making any just sort of, you know, um, you know, really quick, you know, knee-jerk response. There is a process. There are you know, before you, you, you're ordered for a placement out of, out of home, but all the same, I think it's kind of hard to deny that there's still a greater propensity for being removed from your home. If you are black, if you're African-American and then even on paper, again, if you're African-American and male, the propensity is just greater, no matter what the process is, it seems. The process may be better. It may seem, you know, that there's real mindfulness and real, um, you know, it, it's careful. But it just still just on 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 paper. I don't want to read too much into it, 
but it just still seems as though there's going to be a greater propensity. And so I think that we have to continue to look at that idea of propensity, whether it's real or not. I think it's real. Um, I think that there is still something of a um, certainly not an eagerness. I'm not suggesting that people are eager to remove black youth um, from their their homes. But I think that, the, that there is an issue of, of uh, you have a far greater chance um, of being removed um, from your home um, place elsewhere than other youth. And so I'm just want to at least acknowledge that in some way. So those are my three and that's it for me on, <laughs> but thank you. Hey, can I comment on what Commissioner Shorter said? Because she went, she went around the, she went around the, uh, she kind of went around the question a little bit. No, it, 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 it is, it is, it is. I mean, I'm coming from an, uh, another lens, Commissioner. No, it is, it is a, um, is it, it is intentional to move a black child out of out the household. It starts a process, right, of everything else that goes on with African Americans in all over the world right now right so it starts a process you know we we you know we say it always starts you know i was just looking at reading something the other day where it starts in it, it actually starts in the womb so let's just talk about the reality and what it is so um you know no no from just uh just a blunt end yeah it is it is it is um it is intentional so I mean, you know, let's not beat around the bushes. It is intentional. It's not. It's not a coincidence that the statistics you see today is the same statistics that was going on uh, ten years ago, or twenty years ago, or you know, or even thirty years ago. It's the same numbers, right? And just putting them in different, uh, different forms, but it's still the same thing. You know, I mean, I don't know if we and you and you know, like I know you have been in quite a few of these conversations. I don't think a whole lot have changed. For our young people, you know, today. So let's not, you know, let's not be acting like it has. Nothing has changed. You know, we we are incarcerated at a more higher rate than any other um, ethnicity. It is so. It's like you know, and that's by in, that's intention. Yeah. Well, I, I thank you, and I, I just want to say because I think it's really, really important. I wasn't trying, and I appreciate your your further clarifying. Um, my point, I, I don't have a problem. I don't beat around the bush. I'm very direct, <laughs> try to be very direct about it. But I also don't I also want to make sure to not make um, um, just um, um, certain presumptions. I mean, clearly there I think that there are things within the system that that are in place um, to try to mitigate against, um, you know, the, the further um, you know, uh, incarceration, the, far, the further, you know, jurisdiction over um, black folks and black youth, um, black men in particular. I'm, I'm real clear on that. But um, it just, it's um, just uh, yeah, I, I just want to, I would like to, you know, just make sure that we're, I, I, the I, what I'm seeing, you're right. It hasn't changed in a long time, right? The number, the figures, or the phenomena, the dynamics have not really changed much in terms of what we're seeing, um, what the numbers are telling us, right? Um, 
So the question then begs is that even with some of these other improvements, for instance, having a court or having a judge that is a placement judge, right? That that is what they specialize in. That's what they're about. I'm working, or, or um, maybe not a placement judge, but what was um, described earlier. Um, at any rate, um, it would it it's it seems as though when there's even improvements, um, and <laughs> you know one one part of the system, the numbers are still telling the story. Um, there may be fewer um, African American youth that are in the system at this point, but we're still going to be disproportionate. So the 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 propensity issue continues to be a real one, and I am, um, you know, eager to know more about that. Um, and you know, yeah. But we're not going to resolve that this evening. But as we go along and doing the deeper dives, um, you know, we'll we'll be perhaps more informed about that. But I think that ultimately it's a question of of what are we um, doing not only as, as a, a commission, and I'm not saying that this any of anybody personally on the commission or the commission. It's you know, but just as an institution along with the probation department, um, this has been an ongoing issue. This is, this is, you know, at the core of a lot of the, the matter um, at hand. But, um, so what do we do about that? It's an ongoing issue. Mm -hmm. It's an ongoing issue. And hey, so I have a point of order. Um, I, can we use the chat? To talk, to talk to, I, I mean, I sort of find myself wanting to comment on things people are saying or offer suggestions or, you know, sort of, it is it legal for us to use the chat in this meeting? I mean, I know it's a public document, so I wouldn't write horrible <laughs> things in the chat, but, you know, I have written, I was about to write a chat to everyone. I, I've actually already written one to Joe. I wrote one to Katie. Can we um, do that? Can you, can the public see the chat in real time? And can they, no? No. Then no, I, I would not, I would not use the chat. For the, for what you're just, I mean, I wouldn't. It's supposed to be a public meeting. The public's supposed to be included in all parts of it. You can't have non-public communications, but I don't. Re I recommend against non-public communications back and forth. Um, good news. <laughs> Makes sense. Okay. <laughs> You're gonna arrest me now. Okay. <laughs> I just well, want. It was so grateful to Andrea to say this. You know, because it's so true. It's who do we take out of their homes? Who do we, you know, put in placement? And, you know, it, I, I was a foster care worker in 1967. It was the same damn thing. And it's just so important to keep our focus on this. What I was gonna write in the chat was, can we like do an experiment? Take a kid that was gonna go into placement you know, an African-American kid and say, okay, we are going to 
spend the same amount of money on their family, do everything we can to keep that kid in their family? Can we do some with their grandparents or what, you know, can we, can we sort of do some daring experiments like that? I, <coughs> anyway, it's a question, it's a thought, it's a recommendation. I, uh, Commissioner, I feel like that's almost exactly what we're talking about trying to do. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, and I didn't want to interrupt the conversation other than just to um, not only acknowledge that I hear what everybody's saying about racial disparity, but I want to push back a little and say it's not the same. It's actually worse <laughs> than it was 20 years ago um, and all the more urgency for that. Okay, it wasn't worse than 40 years ago. Worse than 20. Um, Commissioner Maldonado, did you have a comment? I don't. I think we covered a lot during this conversation. <laughs> and I certainly want to thank Raina and the team for, um, I'm always impressed with these reports, I have to say. Um, they're thorough, they're informative, and I can tell how much work and effort go into them, and they're very much appreciated. I feel like we spent a small amount of time on them. Understandably, it's a meeting that we have to get through a lot of items, but I can only imagine the time and effort that go into them. So I just want to say thank you very much on behalf of, of all of us because um, they're incredibly helpful and obviously I'm sure very onerous to get through and compile all the data and, and present it to us in a format that we can all understand and kind of process. Not an easy, not an easy feat. So thank you very much. You're here. Thank you all for for listening and for all your thoughtful questions. And I, I'm glad this has um, led to a good conversation. So, and thank you especially to Maria and Chief Miller for their support during this process as well. And can I can I say too that you know Chief Miller and um, commissioners that you know this deep dive is is like what you need right it, it like you know even though we only have an hour and a half uh whatever it is right at least going into the deeper dive of whatever the topic is it gives you an opportunity to kind of you know beyond the data to kind of speak you know you know and talk about like what's the you know what really goes on you know with everything that's happening in the world today you know so with you know especially with our young people and you know the challenges and the times and the changes that's happening out here today. So, the deep dive is definitely um, welcomed, and you know I appreciate it. Thank you, Commissioner. I, I would say that I, I'm speaking for Maria too. I think we're both a little scared that Reina has set a standard doing this as the first deep dive in this meeting um, that we will not necessarily live up to always in our deep dives. Um, and I just want to publicly say. We cannot thank Raina enough for her interest in this, for coming on board and doing this work and doing this caliber of work is just great. And we're, we're so grateful to her. A plus. I also just want to say, if I could add that I actually find it, and I, I don't know if my fellow commissioners agree, but I find it very beneficial when we get the reports or the slides beforehand. And I have the opportunity to review them and kind of take my time and go through them and decipher all the content. So that's something that I personally find very useful and, and helpful um, before attending the meeting and presenting on it. So just thought. Got it. Thank you. Should I continue with the chief's report? Sure, and just thank you so much, Raina, for your presentation. Thank you, Raina.
Can you unshare your screen for me? And may I have the um, ball back? And while the ball is coming back, I'm going to start with the next part of my report. I'm going to talk just briefly about our workforce update, a standing agenda item for all of us. Um, we have two, as you all know, um, last month when we were here, you celebrated um, and honored uh, Assistant Chief Hernandez. And so last week was her last week with the department. So that's terrible, um, but we really wish her well. Um, and uh, I know I'll still be calling on her for assistance and questions, and I'm grateful in advance that she will answer her phone. Um, I wanted to also acknowledge we have a couple of folks uh, retiring this week in the department, both in juvenile hall. Um, Anthony Cole, who's been a counselor here for 12 years. He's retiring this weekend. He's going to go not retiring. He's leaving this weekend and he's going to go become a probation officer in Alameda County, which is a super exciting opportunity for him. I'm so glad for him that he gets that opportunity. And then Robert Taylor, who has is it one of our senior counselors in the hall and has been here for 43 years. Um, and I just want to acknowledge and speak for two minutes about Mr. Taylor. Um, he uh, actually came here from after a career in semi-professional and then professional football. He played on the Raiders um, and then came to the department in 1977 as an on-call counselor. And within seven years actually was all the way up promoted to becoming a senior. And he's been in that role literally for decades. Um, he is just a lovely, kind soul. He had some real wisdom for me when I got here last year and one of the most beautiful singing voices. And I think um, we've heard both kids and adults here say in the last week that they're really going to miss um, his voice when they go through their days in the back. And so his last day is, I believe, either Friday or Saturday, but it'll be his uh, 43 years. So I wanted to thank him and acknowledge him. We've done that also internally, but I wanted to share that with you. We have, I believe, another um, five uh, retirements coming up in the next few months, and we'll share those as they become firmed up. We want to wait till people actually submit paperwork to share that with you. Sometimes people change their minds and things shift around, but those two um, sadly are upon us. Um, and then I also wanted to acknowledge an arrival, um, a new staff member who will be joining us, I think, starting on May 24th. Um, Tara Cartagena will be joining the staff as our new AB 12 social worker. So you've seen from our reports every month that the, the one set of staff that may continually has very high caseloads here are our social workers. They have an average of 40 young people per social worker. Um, AB 12, which is the um, non-minor dependents, so young people who we continue to work with even though they're no longer on, FOSS, on probation status, um, there's a lot of requirements that the, their social workers have to follow to make sure they continue to get their financial benefits um, and also to support them. I think you've all heard us talk about the fact that that age group has really had the hardest time during COVID, loss of jobs, loss of housing, um, and Tara is amazing. I had the privilege of interviewing her as we were making our decision. She's coming to us from HSA, where she's um, also had experience finding relative foster homes, which is great. But really what she wants to do is work directly with young people. Um, young adults are her passion age group for sure. She is from San Francisco, 
her family members work at some of the amazing nonprofits that we partner with a lot here. Um, and so she says this deep value for community from community for finding sustainable programs and services for our young people. I'm very happy she's coming aboard. And then I wanted to give one more note because I had a question come up to me about this today. We have posted the job announcement for our senior supervising probation officer. You'll remember that's the role that Gary Levine used to have. Um, and I uh, was reached out to today with a question of you're downsizing. Why are you posting that position? Totally fair question. And the answer is that, you know, as we downsize, we still know we need to do some reorganization and we're still working on how that looks. Um, but with civil service positions, we can't just reorganize. We have to go through a process of actually posting job announcements, giving people the chance to take the test, get on the list, and then for us to decide. Even starting that now, it wouldn't be until September at the earliest that we would even be able to actually make um, a, a promotion into that job for somebody. And uh, right now we have um, Derek Hom serving as the acting senior supervisor. Um, he knows it'll be for a while. And this gives us a chance to look at that division as a whole and see what makes sense. You know, do we have that job? Does that job look a little bit different than this looked in the past? Do we reorganize in a larger way? But we do have to take those steps as part of the city process to even have that luxury of the conversation. So I wanted to clarify that for folks um, because I might have uh, gotten an inquiry about it today from one of the commissioners. So I wanted to make sure I answered it tonight because um, sometimes my bat phone rings with questions like that um, and they are valid and important. Um, and then I'm going to just flip us over to a few more slides. I know we don't usually do this, but I will and I will share them out afterward. We decided that we had just enough additional information that we should give it to you in the form of slides. So you'll have it after tonight. Um, so I'm going to just share one more time. Uh, let's see. Make sure I do the right thing. I think it's this. Let's see. Yes. Can you see my slides? Yes. 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 Okay, fantastic. Um, so um, just wanted to give you a few updates on all the things happening. We decided to refer to these going forward as system transformation updates because there's so much going on. Um, all really just about transforming the system in various ways. So I'm going to start quickly by just touching on where we are with DJJ closure. So as you'll all remember, um, the state law signed by the governor mandates that each jurisdiction have a subcommittee that develops what our plan will be for the young people who would have been eligible for DJJ. Um, last week, we took the really exciting step of appointing some additional members to that committee. So as a community in San Francisco, we wanted to increase our community and advocate voice on our subcommittee. Um, the, you'll see there's five seats listed. The fifth seat, a representative from the Bar Association, was not a competitive process. That was a, just a vote by the committee that we wanted to make sure we had a defense attorney for the, um, from the private bar in addition to the public defender's office because they really each have about half the cases in the juvenile system, the PD's office and the private bar. But the first four seats were specific seats that we all agreed on wanting to fill, the criteria you can see. Um, what the criteria was, we put out to the community, you know, the opportunity to apply for those four seats across the four seats. We got more than 30 applications and the members of our subcommittee spent a lot of time reading or watching the videos of all of those applications. And then last week, going through a process of um, 
not uh, members could nominate folks and have some discussion and vote, which is a very hard thing to do publicly. It's very hard to vote. For, it's very easy to vote for people publicly. It's hard to vote against them. Um, and unfortunately, that's what the transparency of this government process required. So I appreciate our members going through that. Very excited about the people joining us. Um, Liz Jackson Simpson from the Success Center. That seat was intended to be for a community based provider with expertise working with young adults and workforce development and housing. I think you're all familiar with Liz. There's been commission meetings at the Success Center in the past. Um, and Success Center is also now a partner in the Navigation Center for Young Adults in San Francisco. So she has workforce experience, a lot of specialty with young adults, and now that housing piece too. Fantastic. Will Roy. Um, has been appointed as an individual lived experience. I've known Will for a few years. He's amazing. He's thoughtful. Went through both local custody and CYA when he was younger and has continued to support people in the system and do really great work. Tiffany Sutton um, uh, was appointed as someone who's a caregiver. We had a family member who spent time in juvenile custody, juvenile detention, um, and incarceration. Um, she was also here formerly as a DA in the juvenile division, and she works at the police department, um, but is here in this role in her personal life. And then uh, Chanel Williams, who's an amazing young woman from the community who's been appointed um, really to bring that voice of a kind of a victim or survivor of community violence. And then again, the Bar Association. So we have the full group now. Um, Emily Fox is working hard to get our newest members fully onboarded and our next meeting for our subcommittee, our eight, what we call the 823 subcommittee, because that's the law, is next Tuesday from 3 to 4.30. And it's really going to be hitting the ground in earnest at this point, working on what our um, plan is going to be for the county. Um, SB 92, next bullet point, is the kind of accompanying legislation, the last piece of legislation that the governor needs to sign to finish out all of the kind of legal guidance for all the counties. Um, that just passed out of uh, the legislature in, Cal in California, Sacramento, I think last week, and it's now going to the governor for signature. And it's the last piece that really adds some additional details about what we need in the way of kind of secure options for our highest end kids and what the courts process is for committing kids like that small number of kids to that highest level of a response. And then finally, the state issued um, a grant application process. It's called the youth programs and facilities grant that each uh, 823 subcommittee in California was supposed to kind of approve and probation departments were supposed to submit. Um, essentially, for our purposes, it's just a formula. It's an amount of money that comes to the county based on our population size, and it's intended to be used to support infrastructure as all the counties um, figure out what our plan will be for that highest end group of kids. Um, it can be used for very specific things, things like buying furniture and equipment or doing construction work on a facility, transportation, purchasing curriculum for young people. So again, the kind of quick things that counties need to do as they're transitioning that role back from the state for kids who will be committed to secure confinement. So um, we because uh, it's coming out at a time when counties are still figuring out their plans, one of our options was to basically submit our application saying that our plan is still in progress and that we would circle back in the fall with an actual budget. And that's what our local committee voted on doing because we weren't ready to kind of uh, give a more specific budget yet. So again, it's basically a formula comes to each county. We anticipate getting the money sometime in June. It's going to be a very fast turnaround from the state. Um, and then we'll obviously be holding it here until we figure out what our plan is. 
Moving on from DJJ to the Blue Ribbon panel, I've been saying to you all for a long time that we were really right around the corner from the Blue Ribbon report being released. And last Tuesday, the mayor released the Blue Ribbon panel report. We will make sure that we share the links with people as well as the recording for last week's meeting where she um, shared the report, the consultants who worked on it shared it as well. And she talked about some next steps. Um, it has a lot of recommendations, not just about juvenile justice. Actually, the first, I would say 25 out of 30 pages are really looking holistically at how we support young people and families in San Francisco, how we invest in community and community services, how we make sure they're responsive to the needs of our families and our most impacted communities. So a lot of it is actually directed at thinking about funding, looking at the way DCYF, for example, does that part of its work. And then the last kind of five pages or so are much more specific recommendations related to the juvenile justice system. Again, we'll share it out. We've listed some of them. It's essentially making sure that we're only detaining kids who really need to be detained, that, that probation stepping out of the way for lower risk youth and that our community is that first response and that we're really re-looking at how we do probation for the kids who need it. There's additional recommendations about all the other kind of categories of things we talk about, including placement. Um, and uh, we will make sure you have the report. The mayor talked a little bit about next steps, essentially having um, DCYF and the Human Rights Commission and probation kind of look at the different pieces relative to our universes and obviously bring all the right partners to the table to figure out which recommendations we can implement. But we will get you the report and I'm glad that it's um, been released and everybody can now see the finished product, although they did say that they were still making some final edits, but we're just going to move ahead with this report. Um, quickly, probation's race equity work. Um, as you know, we the plan we submitted at the end of last year was about how we work internally. Um, one important part of that is training our staff, and we have now completed a really great training for both all of our managers and all of our staff now as of last week, um, something called the Neuroscience of Decision Making by Kimberly Papillon, who's a national and actually international expert on the way our brains make decisions on the impact of bias. Someone I had the privilege of being trained by a few times at the DA's office. Um, DA Boudin has had his whole staff be trained by her this past fall. Adult probation had their whole staff trained last year by her. She's phenomenal. And so our staff just finished that process last week. Obviously, getting trained about implicit bias is not a one and done. The question then becomes, how do we take what we learned and keep practicing and keep exercising our brains and make sure that we have actual policies and practices that that address bias, that mitigate the impact of bias on all of us um, and really get at some of the issues that Commissioner Shorter was just talking about in terms of the racial inequities of our system. Um, so that's the part that kind of where we look inward at how we relate to each other as a department. The other part of the city's race equity work, of course, is figuring out how each department does its work, our outward facing work. So for us, how do we interact with our young people, families and communities in ways that mitigate the effects of racial inequities, of our historical inequities and actually improve our outcomes and change the way we do our work? So I'm very excited to share that probation has entered into a contract with a consulting firm called Third Sector. They're a great firm. They have done great work in other jurisdictions, specifically around juvenile justice, around young adult justice, um, including some great work in Alameda, some great work in Multnomah County, Oregon, which is very much a leader in probation reform. 
Um, and we have brought them in to do the work of working with probation and our community partners to really rethink together how we work together to make sure that we are emphasizing diversion, um, reimagining what we do in probation, a lot of the things that came out of the Blue Ribbon Panel Report and very much doing it through that lens of racial equity. I would like to have them come pr uh, present to you um, in one of the meetings this summer about the work. Um, so um, perhaps we can work President Ariano on which month that would make sense to have them come for you to hear from them. Um, but we're really excited about it. I, you know, I, I think that having a very heavily expertly facilitated process to bring together folks, all of us who've kind of had a lot a hard time really coming together and work will be an important change. Um, and we're excited to finally being able to bring that. I just want to clarify that the funding we're using to pay for that was um, leftover funding from the last budget year that we would have otherwise had to give back, but the city enabled us to make a case for keeping it to support our race equity work and that they approved it specifically for this purpose. So very excited to have them work with all of us um, with community partners and probation to move these very practical things forward that we need to be working on together. And then finally, closed juvenile hall working group. Um, I actually was not at today's work group meeting. So when I finish talking, I'll, I want to um, hand the mic to Commissioner Brodkin if she was there today and if she wants to give any updates. But essentially, the working group has to give its draft plan to the Board of Supervisors so the board can then direct me and other folks in the city to begin implementing the next stages. So there is a draft plan that was shared at the end of April. It's very brief. It's about just a couple of pages, more like an outline at this point. It has very similar recommendations as the Blue Ribbon Panel Report in some ways, and it also comes up with some recommendations around what kind of a rehabilitative non-institutional place of detention could look like going forward. Um, it's still very much in draft form, but I believe the goal is to work on that and get that to the board by June. Um, and then as part of that, uh, probation wanted to help with the process and, and provide some kind of critical information. And so we drafted, and I just shared on Friday with the executive committee of the work group, some information about um, state licensure, how we need to work with the Board of State and Community Corrections for a new detention facility, um, whether we could co-locate something, for example, at a place like Edgewood. So could we have a detention site at the same place as a group home? Um, and then some kind of beginning information about what potential number of beds we may need in San Francisco. So we shared it with the executive committee of the Blue, of the Close Juvenile Hall Work Group on Friday, but I also will share it with all of you because I think it would be helpful for you to also see it. And it really was our attempt to kind of offer up some hopefully grounding information as the board considers then how to implement a plan going forward. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I would say that the, the other piece that we'll share with that is that our staff did kind of a initial analysis, like I said, of like bed usage. We looked at the last three years of juvenile hall to see what our average beds were and also our peak periods. Um, just as an offering an initial data point, it doesn't take into account a lot of the reforms we're talking about. It also doesn't take into account what would happen if the age went up in San Francisco, but it's kind of a starting point for all of us collectively to um, kind of dig at as we figure out for sure how many beds we think we may need. So we will share that with all of you. And Commissioner Brodkin, I don't know um, whether you were at today's 
close juvenile hall meeting. I was, and I'll just say, just to make this concrete, today was a more concrete meeting than we often have. And I really want to thank um, our chief for sort of pushing the envelope on like, okay, let's get real. What are we required to do? What's the state gonna, you know? And I think people had brought a lot of hopes and dreams and fantasies, half of which were just not real um, to the thing. So it's become obvious <laughs> that we have, we're gonna have a juvenile hall. We're gonna have a secure facility. Um, one of the places that is being looked at very seriously. Our chief is doing that. The Juvenile Justice Providers Association is recommending that the Edgewood campus would be as good a place as we're going to find. It is it, it, it is sort of a cross between what some people fantasized, which was some house in the <laughs> in the hate, <laughs> some Victorian in the hate that would be a juvenile hall. That's not gonna happen. You know, we do have like, we have to have a secure facility and most likely it will be staffed to a large extent by people who are currently on the juvenile hall staff because of commitments that have been made and the city's commitments about jobs. So I just want to get, you know, I thought it, we owe the commission a sort of reality-based report here. So uh, I, I, I am actually personally supportive of the plan, you know, after having all my fantasies dashed about what, <laughs> what, what might happen with it in the world where we will never lock up another child. But, um, but I think this is a good compromise that we're looking at and it, we would be fortunate to um, have it work out. And it's only going to work out if our chief, <laughs> you know, plays a real critical role in it and works it out. And I, I, I'm so pleased that that's happening. And the second thing that happened at the meeting today was there was a whole discussion of CARC. CARC is the Community Assessment Referral Center. There was a long report on the data and there was a general consensus in the room that we want to, we want to have a system where the entry point for young people is CARC, not, not JPD, not uh, uh, the Youth Guidance Center. So to me, those are two key pieces. If we were able to get a community-based intake system that then said, okay, you are the kids that have to go into the juvenile probation system and the police use that system. So all that's being worked out and that was reported on today. If we had that, if we had the mental health recommendations that have come out of the mental health subcommittee and we had the campus um, that was far superior in my judgment to the current juvenile hall in terms of being accommodating to young people. I think that's the plan we're moving toward. Um, and the meetings are open meetings if anybody wants to chime in at this point. But I'm no longer despairing that we won't come up with anything. We, <laughs> we will. It looks like it's, it's an it's, it's possible. And I was inspired by the mayor who did this blue ribbon committee thing. And she was like, there are only 10 kids. It, it was the first time I've heard the mayor who initially opposed moving the juvenile hall, et cetera, 
talk like she understood why we needed to do that. And so that was very reinforcing. And the second thing she talked about was, okay, we've got to take all this, these services we have and we have to organize them better, target them better and have a system of accountability that was better. I thought they were both on target. So I'm feeling much better about the whole thing than I have felt in the last year and a half. So um, I'm delighted to give you a concrete and semi-positive report. Are, are you going to take issue with it at all? <laughs> Commissioner Brock and I'm in awe. Awe <laughs> <laughs> <All> of what? <laughs> that anything happened? <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, just the outcome of, I mean, like, I mean, the change of, the change of heart from you and uh, change of, I mean, just, oh, I'm in awe. <laughs> I, I share Commissioner Spingola's awe. I want to, I want to remind Commissioner Bodkin, this is a recorded meeting. <laughs> so there's no, there's no take backs. Yeah, um, but I, I, I just want to thank uh, chief uh, for your report as well as commissioner Brodkin uh, with your update from the, uh, the work group. Um, to go through just a few points, uh, I look forward to reading the blue ribbon panel report. I, I wasn't aware it went out. Did they issue a press release and, and uh, send that out? I didn't see anything. No, they didn't. That's why I think the easiest thing is for me to send the link to all of you. Okay. That's how you get to it. Got it. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, and then in terms of the racial equity action plan, um, I would love to um, have that presentation uh, on the neuroscience. Um, so absolutely would love to schedule that for a few so minutes. So, Commissioner, so that was a training that we had done. So that part isn't what we can have come present. Um, oh, we could okay. see whether that's, yeah, yeah, unfortunately. <clears throat> so it's what, what we're thinking about is having the consultants that we brought online come and talk to you about like their vision for how to help us all actually now implement that's a lot of what the mayor talked about last week in the Blue River. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Um, and then I guess the one question I had coming out of the closure um, uh, working group is this this kind of June date that had been, you know, lingering since the legislation was passed. And just the mechanics of that, are we expecting to meet that date? I know that there was like a report that had to happen six months prior to December. Um, and then the closure would happen in December. And so I just, I mean, we're now in May, which is just crazy. Um, and I was just wondering if there's, you know, just the more kind of ministerial portion of this that needs to happen and will happen. Is it going to be delayed? Is it going to happen? It sounds like there's been a lot of progress, which is excellent. Um, but I was just curious where we stand on the target dates and, you know, the, you know, the mechanics of all that. Um, so a couple of things, uh, 1, just on going back to the Kimberly Papillon training, we will give you the link. Um, and I need to thank Gabe Calvio, who just sent me a nice reminder text to the, um, Ted talk she does. Cause I do think you'll find that valuable. Right. Um, and then in terms of the timeline, um, there has been more talk about it. I actually have a meeting scheduled with President Walton for next Monday to talk about this in more detail. Um, but uh, I also am gonna kick it to Maria to see if she had any updates either from conversations. I, 
President Ariano, I asked the same question today. I think it was the most unpopular question. But so they were talking about we're going to do the report in July. We're definitely have it done by November. And I was like, isn't it due on June first? Because that's what the ordinance says. Um, so there had, I guess, been um, offline conversations with the board where they had mentioned that the report would not be done by June 1st. And I believe that the follow up item is that the closed juvenile hall working group is going to write a formal letter to the board indicating that their intention is to do the plan by July 1st. It does that sound right, Commissioner Rodkin? Actually, I think it was the end of July. Oh, okay, <laughs> maybe the end of July. Look, I feel like I get to have an opinion on everything, right? I I feel like if by the end of December we have a plan that everybody's agreed to and there are concrete steps in place to begin to operationalize the plan, I'll be happy. And there is no way we're going to move into a new facility, get the state approval, renovate it, the whole thing, you know. Now, super didn't happen, but you know, and, and good for him. I'm glad he is pushing the envelope. But I think if we, I, I will feel good if we have a concrete plan that the judges have signed off on, that the mayor has signed off on, that we've all signed off on, we'll be in good shape by the end of, by the mm -hmm. end of December. And it, it, you know, these things take time. And I would add, you know, I think Commissioner Brodkin laid out a handful of the things that have to happen. Um, there's lease arrangements, there's uh, all labor negotiations, and the most important part is all of us really figuring out what we want a building to look and feel like and what programming you wanted it, right? Like, those are really important conversations. It's the meat of it to me, and we want to make sure we do that right. But there's a lot of consensus about that in terms of the, you know, that that is what people feel most comfortable talking about in some ways. But anyway, yeah, you're right. Yeah, but the actual governance of things is always a whole other matter, isn't it? So what happens if, I mean, what are the consequences? I'm not understanding what the consequences are if there's no report on June 1st or July 4th. I mean, so what? What happens? What are the consequences? Right. Good. Somebody goes to jail. I don't know. Okay, so there's so then the process is the process. It takes the time that 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 Margaret has described, which is which is reasonable. It sounds like reasonable expectation. So I've not understood and I you know, again, forgive me, I don't I don't mean to sound um at all um you know, kind of dismissive about the process, but I never heard what 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 happens if there isn't, you know, this grand plan by June 1st. So mm -hmm. are there any is there are is it is it a funding issue? Is it a um a compliance issue? Is it a you know yeah. other than that someone arbitrarily put in those dates? No, so that's the other thing we didn't just touch on is that they also have to find the money for, for, yeah, the, exactly. for it. Um, but, you know, I think commissioner, what the question becomes then is, you know, do we move forward on the assumption that we continue to operate the hall until otherwise? Um, and I think you, you've all heard me say this a handful of times. I don't know if you've heard me say it commissioner. So I'm going to say it again. You know, you see. 
staff retiring, predominantly our staff from the hall. And obviously we need to make sure we can staff this building right. and we have yeah. kids here. Now, you know, as we emerge from COVID, hopefully mm -hmm. that will affect how many units we have operating. Mm -hmm. But no matter what, we need to make sure we can run the facility. And so my hope is that the more we can have clarity on a uh, more accurate closure date, I think it would help people here make decisions mm -hmm. about their lives. Right. Because people here are making decisions, assuming I already know of at least uh, at least two more people planning on retiring based on that December 31st date, right? The, so, the, da the danger of stalling this and just, you know, oh, well, it's not good enough. Let's wait, let's wait, let's wait. And I think that's what Supervisor Walton doesn't want to have. He doesn't want to lose the momentum and commitment to do this. He wants to be able to say, we have a plan. We know it's going to happen. It's going to take longer to operationalize the plan. Um, I think if that happens, we'll all be cool. I don't know what the city attorney does when, when a piece of legislation isn't implemented, but I'm not staying up at night worrying about it. <laughs> yeah, and I think that to, to that point, um, Chief, you know, I think that the reason I asked it was for that reason in, in the sense that, you know, the, the one thing that Commissioner Brodkin mentioned, which I thought was, um, you know, the most important of her remarks is that, you know, there's an understanding that juvenile hall staff will be a part of this process yes. in this new juvenile hall-esque facility. And the earlier that this date certain, you know, could be resolved in some kind of fashion, obviously it doesn't have to be an exact date, but just a skeleton of what this would look like, it would give the clarity to your staff at the hall so that perhaps we do stem some of those retirements or the losses that will be needed um, so that not only we can field a facility that is currently in operation for the youth that are there, but also moving forward, um, you know, how, you know, we're going to need those, you know, people that are, right. are on the front line. So, yeah, I mean, I just that that's kind of the crux of my question. It's just like, you know, at what point do we get that information out there to them so that they they can make their own plans and you know, start to, you know, figure out how this is going to look in their lives as well. Because um, it feels like the longer we push this out for political reasons, it does create a problem for operational reasons so that, the you know, we want the new facility to be successful you mm -hmm. know, coming out of this. And I think that's the ultimate goal um, for, for at least, you know, from my perspective, it, you know, it should be like, how do we make this the most successful from on day one? And if we um, are starting at a disadvantage from a staffing component level, I mean, that's just, you know, I think where my concern arises right. from. So, right. And how do we offer certainty if we're going to do this at Edgewood to Edgewood? Right. Yeah, <laughs> how do the place? Yeah. How do the pieces fall into place? Um, and you know, Commissioner Brodkin, I think you know, it's like we can't perfect can't be the enemy of good, right? We need to make decisions. We need to try things, and we need to acknowledge that sometimes developing things is necessarily iterative, and we try things and we adjust. Um, and so. How you do that within the context of bureaucracy and state approval processes is complicated. Um, and we just, we need to give it our full, right? I think that we should appoint Commissioner Brodkin to the Bureau of State and Community Corrections and then have her <laughs> expedite the approval of this facility so that we can get moving. <laughs> Great, not where I wanna be, but we all know our governor and he can help expedite worst case <laughs> scenario. <laughs>
Uh, Commissioner, I just, Commissioner Moses, go ahead. Yeah, again, I just want to thank Andy Shu for the wonderful job she's doing. I just don't know how you must really have a secret power that you use, you know, because with all this thing coming up, the mass retirement, you know, also the people moving to our new facilities and all this thing, I, you know, I just applaud you for what you're doing. I've been there. If one of my staff say, oh, I retire, I go crazy. But, you know, this mass retirement is really, really having a big thing on you. I hope you're taking good care of yourself because it's just amazing to see how, how you're doing. And I really give you credit for that. Also, too, uh, Commissioner Margaret, I think that's really incredible. The update you give us about the, um, the location and everything, that's good. We'll be looking forward to hear more about this. And I'm glad to see that the plan is in progress. And I'm hoping that we work out because to be able to get approval from the community is going to be really tough. I ran a residential program for many years, and it's really hard to get approval you know, because it's just like not in my neighborhood, not in my neighborhood, but I'm sure the mayor will have a plan for that. So I really applaud everything that you guys are doing. We really, I'm hoping that, you know, the chief is taking good care of yourself could be, you know, I know we talk about knowledge capture in the past because people are leaving. There has to be a way of transferring that knowledge to the new people that are coming in. So again, thank you. And thank you, Commissioner Bradkin. Commissioner, I want to thank you for recognizing it and I want to acknowledge it obviously impacts me, but I really think it impacts people who have worked here for decades with the people who are retiring. Um, right. You know that that is a loss deeply felt by people here. So it's the institutional knowledge and and decades of relationships. And we all talk a lot about how we know relationships are everything to kids and Amen. they're everything to everyone. And um, I was at a retirement party for one of our staff today, and there's a lot of emotion for people. Right. Again, thank you. Stay thank blessed. You. Thank you, Commissioner. That was a very good point uh, about acknowledging the chief, keeping uh, her composure during all of this, and coming to these meetings, and you know, through all throughout all of this, I think that's one thing that we forget is that there's uh, uh, a chief and a whole staff in the building and everyone involved in this that's that's shifting the Titanic uh, in the middle of a pandemic and, uh, you know, to acknowledge the, the great efforts that you've been doing, Chief, you and your team, um, keeping us abreast, doing this on the, you know, just day in and day out basis to the entire staff. We appreciate it. Thank you. Other comments, questions from the commissioners about the Chief's report? Seeing none, um, I will open it up to Commissioner Brodkin for the Programs Committee report. Okay, I'll be really report, uh, brief. Um, we had a discussion and it involved people from a variety of agencies about the 17, the 18 and over kids, kids, young people, youth, young adults, um, and 
what needs to happen to serve them because it is a different population than people who've gone into probation for years and years where almost everyone was under 18. And now a third of our caseload is is 18 and over. And this is a this is a uh, a, a, um, a challenge. Um, fortunately, the new hire that our chief made um, was at the meeting, and this has been his area of expertise. He's been in adult probation, working with the transitional age adults. That's good. Um, there are people in the community concerned, like, hey, we need to do better with this population. There are a lot of concrete things that these young people need out of the meeting. Um, there, there have been some follow-up meetings between people in the community and the new staff person, and we decided to spend the next meeting on housing because that came out as sort of the number one priority for this population, like, uh, and everybody agreed on that. So if you are interested in that, come to the meeting. Um, we will have the a, a new, um, someone from Larkin Street, uh, there, which provides housing, someone from uh, DCYF that is what was the head of homelessness in San Francisco who's going to come. And if you have other ideas about who might come, but the idea I hope comes out of it is maybe some concrete recommendations about how we're going to expand the housing availability for this population. And then um, Commissioner Spangola wanted to discuss log cabin ranch so at the meeting following that we will discuss the ranch <laughs> something that we have not discussed in all these other committees something that is certainly relevant to the discussion of djj but just start the more open public discussion about people's ideas about the ranch and their visions of what they want to see. I think that will be an, an important meeting. And then I, you know, after that, um, I'm hoping we have a chance to discuss the placement issue again and maybe have some kind of commitment to a planning process that will you know, avoid the problems that we just had with Catholic Charities and get us on a strong interagency footing about um, sort of planning for beds and and who who's responsible and who's going to monitor it and how are we going to make sure that that happens. So. Thank you, Commissioner. Um, and uh, the log cabin, uh, I am glad that that's being discussed and it actually spurred me about an agenda item that I wanted to bring up in the next item. So thank you. Um, I'm excited to hear that the programs committee is taking up log cabin and discussing it. Um, at this time, are there any questions or comments for Commissioner Brockham about the programs committee report? Um, I got one. Um, Chief Miller, did you guys do a walkthrough up at log cabin um, just recently? I know I, I was, I seen, I seen it come through, but did you guys do a walkthrough? Yeah, we did it, um, gosh, back in March. We offered yeah. some tours for folks. Yeah. Um, we can do it again if we have a number of people who didn't get to go and want to. Um, and it was to see both Log Cabin and Hidden Valley, which is oh, a yeah. road from Log Cabin and um, is, you know, uh, Jurassic Park at this point, but worth seeing. That's what I was going to ask. That's what I, excuse me, but that's what I was going to ask you too. What was the conditions? And I figured probably just kind of just got out the way. I mean, kind of just got run down with the con. And nobody's out kind of maintaining yeah. the facilities. 
So the ranch actually our engineering um, staff is still maintaining. Um, there's oh. things that need to happen there. The water is offline is the biggest thing. And obviously there's things that would need to happen, but generally they've maintained it. All the other inspections are up to date except for water. But the ranch, uh, but Hidden Valley, um, other than the gym, because the ranch kids use the gym, the rest of it is like totally reclaimed by the earth. So oh. um, they're very different, but we also showed it um, just for commissioners. So, you know, we also showed both properties to some members of the board of supervisors. Um, you know, one question came up about whether Hidden Valley could be really transformed into like a new facility for drug treatment, right? As part of mental health SF, like there are things like that, that it was a very open conversation about those spaces. We have 614 acres of land down there and um, a lot of creative ideas that were coming up. So I think it's great to talk about it um, in, in multiple settings. And it'll also be something that will obviously come up in the DJJ planning conversation. Yeah, Thank just you. curious. So, what will happen to YGC once we move out? Do they have a plan? Is going to be empty, or somebody else is going to move there, or what? It, it's it's the stuff that urban myths are made of right now. I think depending on who you ask, there are many answers. I've been told by my own Which, staff. Let's ask Margaret. Yeah, that's already going to be condos. <laughs> There's all kinds of things about this property. <laughs> Um, but Commissioner, in all seriousness, uh, one thing that came up in a meeting I was in today was a question about um, really going back and looking, you know, so we still have, uh, you all know this, we're improving our budget. We have the debt service on this building, no matter what, about two and a half million dollars a year for the next bazillion years. So, um, you know, uh, one, one question that came up to me today in another meeting was, are there conditions attached to that debt service about what this space can be? So there's... There are specific questions I think we'll need to look at as we move away from this building for what okay. could what could happen here. All right, thank you. Great question, Commissioner. I actually had the same one myself. Um, are there any other questions or comments of the chief's report? I'll now open it up for public comments. Uh, this is public comment on item four, the chief's reports and the programs committee report by Chris, Commissioner Brodkin. And I'll remind the public to press star three to raise their hands at this time and be added to the line. Do we have any uh, members of the public with their hand raised at this time? No, and no emails. I'll just give it one more second because we're meeting virtually, obviously, and give it folks a chance to press star three and raise their hand if they'd like to comment on the chief's report. At this time, are there any other hands raised? No. Thank you. We'll close this item and move to item number five, future agenda items. Um, so as I mentioned, the talk about log cabin ranch uh, spurred my thought on the budget aspect. Um, and I know chief, we have the May revised coming from the governor, I believe Friday. Um, and so I wanted to just perhaps talk with, um, see if you and Maria and Steve had a presentation perhaps for the following meeting, or if that would be too soon to talk through budgetary 
uh, impacts to the department um, and also if there's a chance to see if the department has had uh, a chance to look at the federal, um, I don't know if the rescue plan uh, affects this as well, but just looking at those two um, big bills and whether they impact the department moving forward and how that, if that we can make that an agenda item at all. Sure, I mean, the federal money comes to the city, the city is determining how to spend it in a nutshell, right? So it's not like a, a portion of it's coming directly to us. Um, by and large, the city's indicated using it to make sure there's no layoffs across all departments, but I don't have more specifics. Um, let me see what we can find for you in terms of specifics by June um, for both of those. And then of course the mayor will be releasing her budget in June. Um, hopefully we'll have enough time from when she releases to this meeting to provide some of that to you as well. So would you be willing to add to that topic? I've become sort of obsessed. Like it isn't just the American Rescue Plan, there's state money, there's you know, bond money that's come in around homelessness. There's there's a whole lot of new funding streams. There's the money that the mayor has set aside from the police department. I I feel like it, it, you're you're raising a real important issue about what part of that do the kids on juvenile uh, in in our department, you know, get? So, and I feel like targeting some of that money or asking the mayor, or, you know, to to make sure that the kids in in this system get access to the new resources that are available is really important. And I would really appreciate being able to talk about that. Is that consistent with what you're asking about, Joe? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of the rescue, I, I, in terms of the state money, I completely agree. And then I also think it, it seems as though the rescue plan was structured around the idea of supporting families and doing more to, you know, really, um, you know, just strengthen families at a grassroots level so that we can, you know, obviously build families and communities upward. And so I just wasn't sure if there had been an analysis at the city level to, you know, dig in on that, how it impacts us, if the department can tap into those monies, or if it goes directly to obviously the individuals and the families. Um, I know that seems like a big component of it, right? It's just getting money out there as fast as possible, but it's such a huge, um, you know, bill. I just wasn't sure if there was an impact that the department could tap into as well. So yeah. I just, they're critical questions. I don't know how ready we would be by the, by the June meeting to really pull all of that into me. I think some of that honestly is the commission possibly calling in folks from the right agencies in the city who can speak to that. Sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, for example, you could invite somebody from the Our City, Our Home Committee, which is the group in the city looking at kind of homelessness. Um, you know, obviously there's a brand new director of homelessness in the city. She started last week. So like she's in transition. But um, perhaps we could offer up some suggestions uh, through Pauline to you of folks who may be able to speak on some of those specific things. And then Commissioner Brodkin, um, Abigail Stewart-Khan, who you're having come from DCYF, to your point, also used to run the Department of Homelessness and probably could speak about um, what I think a lot of her role is at DCYF, which is thinking about how those resources impact kids and families. Um, so you might want to um, pose that question, right? Could she do a kind of a larger presentation for this group? But why don't we offer some suggestions about some potential guest speakers? I think that's better than us trying to um, like analyze and digest and 
Right. No. Yeah. Totally, totally. And if and and we know we can always call a finance committee meeting and have the you know talks yeah. there and figure out where exactly it leads for the full commission or just have them come to the full commission, um, whatever is is easier um, in terms of streamlining things and just having a discussion. I think. Okay. Thank you. Are there any other uh, future agenda items? Yeah. Yeah, I know last commission meeting will. So we'll go invite um, family mosaic to come and make presentation. Is there any update? Family mosaic. Was that a request of the chief or of our secretary? Yeah. Last commission meeting, I think it was decided that we're going to invite family mosaic to come and talk about their program. Okay, I can reach out to them. Do you have a contact person I can speak with? Sure, I'd be glad to send okay. it to you. Perfect, thank okay. you. Are there other future agenda items that commissioners would like to request of the department at this time? Or would just like to put on the agenda? Not seeing any. Uh, and we'll now move on to announcements. Um, I know that with um, our uh, with Commissioner Montahano, part of finance committee, um, we are down, I think, to just Commissioner Maldonado and myself. So um, maybe this is a better pose to our deputy city attorney. I know I can't just appoint members to the committees, but I wanted to just ask Perhaps if uh, one of our new commissioners, Commissioner Chu or Commissioner Shorter, would like to join the finance committee, um, since we have only have two members at this time. See Commissioner. I will Shorter gladly join the finance committee. Okay. Thank you. Um, so I know um, again, our deputy city attorney. Do I have to actually formally make this an agenda item, or can we just? Uh, since we have agreement from Commissioner Shorter to join, can we just make that announcement now? Um, if I recall your bylaws, you're the one who appoint. It's not the body doesn't appoint the members to the committee. You do. So then it's not an action of the body. So I don't think it has to be agendized. Um, mm -hmm. But I just want to mention as long as I'm speaking. Did you have public comment on the item before? I didn't. I may have missed it, but I just wanted to. I, I don't think I heard you say public comment on the. Yeah, uh, I did. On the, uh, on, the on, on the cheese report we did. Yeah, I haven't taken yeah. it on item no, five yet, which is. Okay, yeah. I don't have the agenda in front of me, so maybe it, that's not it. Maybe the thing you just was it. Um, things to be added to the next meetings. I thought that the, is that not a separate agenda item? Then that's part of this agenda item. Part of item five. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Then go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. It's uh, it's a good uh, point. Um, okay, so then uh, it sounds like Commissioner Shorter will join uh, the finance committee um, as of this meeting. And thank you, Commissioner, for agreeing to to join us on the finance committee. Um, and perhaps we can talk through um, chief um, dates when it makes sense on, you know, uh, the right person from other departments to come and talk um, at the finance committee. So just obviously very preliminarily, you know, since it sounds like we're still waiting for facts figures to come in, but once we do know a little bit more, perhaps you can ping me and we can start talking through finance committee dates. Sounds good. Perfect. 
Um, are there any other announcements at this time before we take public comment on item five? Not seeing any. Um, is there any public comment on item five? And I'll remind the public to press star three to raise their hand. There's no public comments. All right, thank you. So we'll now close item number five and move to adjournment. We are now adjourned. The time is 8.30 p.m. Thank you very much. Okay, good night. Good night, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. <laughs>